Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 212th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's ready to become one with the Matrix. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as usual, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin'. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, all of our healthy listeners. Good evening, James. It's uh, quite a quite a time here. Scary, scary time. Yeah, we were uh, just talking off cast, and I, I said, "Wait, hold that thought. Let's do this when we get uh, on on the cast and get recording." Um, these, uh, you said you had talked to some distributors that had some insight into their expectations regarding LGS closures. Is that correct? Well, it's just, I've been, as I usually tend to be doing, talking to anyone and everyone who has good information about how things are going so far um, in, in the economy at writ large, but also within, you know, the magic community, vendors, distributors, um, small C capitalism, resellers and MTG finance types and so forth. And the general consensus has been that sales are definitely down. Um, Some more than others. I haven't seen a tremendous drop in my online sales, but I think that partially that's because I tend to focus on higher value cards. So my audience probably has slightly deeper pockets and slightly deeper reserves. And it might be slightly less worried if they're still getting a paycheck every two weeks. Um, I was saying probably the type of jobs that would be pandemic, more likely to be pandemic proof. Sure. Some of them resistant, some of them might resistant. be. Some of them might be. Um, well, I mean, if you're, if you're throwing that much money at magic cards, you're probably in the type of position, you know, white collar. Sure. I mean, that isn't as disrupted as like a service industry person for now. Like I, I definitely am expecting to see a, my sales fall off a cliff. They just haven't gotten there yet. But a lot of vendor, yeah, yeah. larger vendors I've talked to have said, like gross order volume could be down as much as 50%. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's not even the, the basement yet. So, you know, I'd expect to start seeing some fire sales um, and some pretty intense promotion activity over the next weeks or months. Um, there's a real good chance that the Ikoria launch is either going to be a real soft launch or is going to get moved back officially because word through the distribution networks is that a lot of local game shop owners basically can't cover their bills and won't mm-hmm. be able to pay their for their orders that they've committed to at the distributor level. So that could mean that a lot less Ikoria product can even hit the market, um, which is going to be real awkward because Ikoria sounded like a humdinger of a set and they've got special licensing apparently lined up for it we've been hearing rumors of godzilla or whatever being attached to the the product whether that has to do with the box toppers or something to do with japanese booster boxes or whatever has yet remains to be confirmed but um you know it it could just be a total meltdown of product moving through the supply chain 
And then we had already talked about the risk to the undercapitalized smaller LGSs and smaller towns and so forth. And if distributors are already seeing major problems uh, appearing uh, on their, you know, through their day-to-day contact with that network, then a lot of our kind of worst case scenarios could be well on their way to becoming true. I mean, you, when you made the comment off cast just a couple minutes ago that we kind of missed last week, but is a, a bit revelatory that the distributors, you know, the distributor you talked to was anticipating something like what, 40 to 60% of LGS is closing, right? It was like in that ballpark. And, And I'm sure that's a very rough hewn number. But, yeah. but it's, you know, this is the worst case scenario we were referring to over the last few weeks that well, so many LGSs are just don't have enough of a cash, uh, you know, rainy day fund. They're, they're well, not tremendously the, large businesses. They don't tend to have uh, big cash reserves. They don't tend to have external financing. Um, they might have a small business loan or a line of credit, um, but there's not there's just not going to be very much of a safety net for them um, especially if a big stimulus package doesn't get passed in the US that targets them very quickly the, well yeah and the, all, all that true and the next step being if you see let's just ballpark and say 50% we obviously don't know what it's going to be but let's just run with 50% for the time being if we have that many stores closed and this is the real gotcha is all of that inventory becomes liquid and now you have a huge volume of, of cards. It was previously kind of, you know, in glass cases at retail pricing and only accessible to essentially a local, typically local markets, um, or at least the smaller stuff was really only local. You know, I, I think a lot of local stores will relist some of their higher value cards on eBay and TCG at the same time. But all of, you know, if you have fifty percent of the LGSs across the country closing, imagine the volume of guards getting dumped into the marketplace. That's a significant amount of cards, and as, as you made the point too, is who the hell is even going to be able to buy that? Like, not you know, if the store down the street closes, the guy's trying to get as much money out of this as he can. Um, he's going to be basically fire selling these things at ludicrous prices because how many people are going to be lining up to pay 40 or 50 grand for magic collection when it's happening all over the country people are gonna be like oh, i don't know if i want to buy that many cards because this isn't just my store this is all these stores so there's going to be no confidence in the buyers for the most part either yeah and so we, we could be talking about hundreds of millions of dollars worth of inventory flooding the market and you said it would be going liquid but actually what would it would be doing is attempting to go liquid well, and the yeah. the problem there being that, as you said, not very many parties would be in a position to absorb it, um, and the ones that would, the people that would be, will be in a position where it's a buyer's market. They can cherry pick what they want to take. They don't have to commit to taking the entire inventory. If it ends up in, as part of a bankruptcy sale or something, and they can get it for ten or fifteen cents on the dollar, some of those will be very tempting, and people will snap them off. Um, you know, the healthiest store in your region might be willing to take bites, big bites out of uh, inventory from smaller stores that close. Um, it's also possible some of these owners might might not be bankrupt so much as they are so cash flow negative that it just behooves them to, you know, stop running their operation. The, the really 
in-tune ones that are already running online operations might be able to shift some focus there, throw some marketing dollars behind an online campaign and get some singles moving on Facebook groups or whatever. Um, but I would imagine some of the owners will might hold their inventory if it's not owed to debtors because they might assume that they'll they'll try to reboot in three, six, 12 months, whatever. Um, if they're a two, you know, two income household and their significant other was already maybe the one that was paying most of the bills that that might end up making more sense. The, well, I don't know how many local stores that you, obviously you visited a lot in Toronto. I'm not sure how many of them, you know, the owner at a personal level, but I, you know, anecdotally, every single local store in our area was either run by a single person or someone whose household they the the person running the store was the lion's share of the income. Yeah, that uh, there's only one outfit here that that does not describe them, and they're like by volume, possibly the largest magic vendor in the country. Uh, so it's it seems pretty common. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I have no stats on that, broadly speaking. But the the mm-hmm. ones where the their family is depending on the money are the ones that are going to fire sale the hardest. The ones that are up yeah. to their eyeballs in debt are going to be the ones that are going to be forced to fire sale. Um, if they, you know, they go through some kind of foreclosure proceeding. So yeah, a, a lot of inventory could be hitting. So when our members are asking in our discord this week, you know, like, what should I be buying with the latest eBay coupon? My response is basically hold. <laughs> like, not, ma- not magic cards. Well, there's no, well, nothing really. There's, I wouldn't be buying stock market yet either. I mean, people, people have been, again, this they, is not a, do they finance, sell that on eBay? This is not a, you know, official financial advice. Don't listen to us, et cetera, et cetera. But when people are asking me about, you know, should I be buying the stock market low? We don't know that this is the bottom. Like the the West does not have the virus under control. So I I don't care what stimulus packages are being proposed because most of them seem to be largely corrupt. Uh, certainly the ones that have been tabled in the U.S. have largely been so. And they also seem very short-sighted. They're, they're aimed at reversing core, like... Re- changing perception in the short term to try to boost the stock market more than they are about ensuring that the mid to long term health of the uh, society and economy is taken care of. I mean, the the vibe I'm getting from the Republicans in the U.S. is, you know, they might be willing to sacrifice 2% of the population to get the stocks back up, which is a very dystopian future, very dystopian near future that we are facing. Yeah, it's clear that the plan is to mulch everyone over the age of 60 uh, who has not built a trust fund and use their bloody pulp remains to oil the the machine of the economy. But yeah, aside from that, uh, <clears throat> a quick shout out to Jason Alt, uh, get back. But on the, you know, the... In a shorter term version here, a shorter term is even if things manage to turn around in like three months, right? If by some chance we manage to get into, what is it? It's mid-March, so late June, early July, and things are mostly under control and we're recovering at a good clip. If the stores fold in the next 30 days, it will have been too late. 
So it's not even like this has to run rampant for a long period of time before that causes an issue. Most of these stores are probably, like we said, probably only managing a month at a time or close to it. So making it to the end of June, early July and still being able to pay their bills, like that that might not be soon enough. It probably isn't. Uh which which will then dump all those cards into the market and cause all these other issues. So even if the you know the general economy is trying to turn around come July, the magic card you know the physical magic card market could still be taking a huge drag because it just took too long to get there. And now you have people finally coming back to the tables and ready to buy cards, but there's no local stores for that. There's there's far fewer local stores for them to play at. Which means that you're going to see you would see a drop off in people actually attending stores and having a reason to buy paper cards because if you're in a smaller town and your only store closed now I mean, come July it doesn't matter if you're back to work and you're making money again because we, why would you buy the cards you've nowhere to go play um, it, it just seems like even if the greater economy manages to turn around in three months the paper magic economy might be suffering pretty bad for a while. It's all just question marks at this point. The, yeah. And the other thing is yeah. that at, if you go up a level, it's it's not even just the LGSs. The distributors could be in real trouble because it's not just magic. It's everything. Like all discretionary income is uh, threatened because unlike a normal recession where, you know, unemployment uh, is present and and rising, but isn't nearly as extreme as I think the numbers are going to be that we see next month um, Mm -hmm. when the reports start to get very real. Um, You know, unemployment here could be double or triple or even quadruple what it would normally be in your average recession. So that means that, you know, the low-key discretionary items like cigarettes and movie tickets and magic cards that normally would survive okay through that period (laughs) might not be safe at all. We just don't know. Because, you know, I, if you think about how you're running your own household, most of the people I've talked to in our in our network, both personally and through MDG Finance, everyone's just cautionary. Like, spending, family spending down to the bare essentials, you know, buying food, and that's about it. As it turns out, in our household, the biggest expenditures were eating out and going on vacations. So just being stuck in our house is saving us money. And we live in a socialist country, um, where we already have a bit of a safety net anyway, um, because we get money from, just for having a kid. We get money from the government every month, and starting in April, we're gonna a good chunk of the families in Canada will be getting like nine hundred every two weeks or whatever that'll keep people in the game and uh, and away from poverty. But in the U.S., where those safety nets don't necessarily exist, uh, I'm very worried about what the outcome is going to be. And up from the level of the distributors, even Hasbro's not safe. I mean, Hasbro doesn't strike me as the kind of company that the U.S. government is going to target for a bailout, should such a thing be necessary. And keep in mind that they had already taken a massive hit from the Toys R Us distribution network being knocked off the map for toys. And they had been slowly shifting into, you know, resources into magic because it had its own had a mix of both digital and paper play. It had its own retail network that was independent of the major toy stores, et cetera. And now if that network is threatened, then a great chunk of Hasbro's entire product portfolio is at risk, very similarly to Magic. So you can expect Hasbro to be getting just 
tanked and they were in a reasonably solid financial position heading into this but this all depends on how long it lasts like most major companies will be able to survive three months without a bailout things like the airlines need to action sooner six nine twelve months starts to make the entire economy extremely shaky and and undermined and i just don't even know what things look like coming out the other side of that well six to 12 months is it's hard to even conceive you know like we're gonna what that looks like like running local planting communes yeah it's that's to the point where it's hard it's hard to conceptualize we don't really have any framework for it um and frankly it just kind of makes me nauseous thinking about it so I, I just focusing on the short term and hoping, but yeah, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about Hasbro as a whole and how they would react. Like, I guess, I don't know. I wouldn't have expected them to be in dire straits as a result of all of this, but it, it does kind of make sense. I mean, a lot of their products are essentially luxury spending. Um, it's not luxury, but know, it's discretionary. It's, and the, yeah. the, I would guess they saw a spike. As did a lot of LGSs. As, you know, before the stay-at-home orders hit, people were stocking up on board games and buying toys for their kids, and March break was going to be extra weeks longer, so they were, you know, buying stuff for the children and their family. But that quick burst is quickly going to get shut down and undermined because you can no longer leave the house to go buy anything. And online sales should still generate revenue, but their online sales platforms aren't super great. So they're largely relying on things like Amazon to to drive sales. And, you know, that, that will go on. They're not going to go to zero like an LGS might, but they're going to be in trouble. Um, and I'd have to spend some more time with their numbers to get a sense of how, how much trouble and how fast. Um, so it... It's tricky. It's very, very tricky. I mean, my my approach personally has been to take pretty much any reasonable offer. Like, if I have a card listed at thirty on eBay and somebody sends me a twenty two dollar offer, I usually consider that low ball and ignore it. Probably only accept things twenty six to twenty eight, depending on the mood I'm in that day. But this week, if you send me any reasonable offer over two thirds of value, I'm probably down to ship that card to you. Because one of the other things I'm worried about is that it's going to get so bad that the postal networks just shut down. I mean, they're essential services for the time being, but if they are identified via science as major disease vectors, if it turns out that this virus can survive longer on paper surfaces than has commonly been worried about, then, you know, at minimum, you're going to see delays through that system. Um, There's already like some of that popping up in the magic community. Card Kingdom announced that they're, you know, putting everything in court incoming to their buy list in quarantine for three or four days. Um, delaying how quickly they'll process that stuff because they want to make sure that there's there's no incidental surface contact that becomes a problem. Do you, okay, so you I mean you're talking about taking reasonable offers on eBay? Um, I mean, I, I would imagine that's not because you need the money right now. Is it because you think the bottom's going to fall out on a lot of this stuff? Uh, it's because I don't know. It's because it's all question marks. You know, like as you said before, cast we can't reasonably tell people to go out and buy paper magic cards right now because we don't know how much further things will tank like if you know say uro is down 10 bucks in a couple weeks one of the hottest cards in the game 
starts to tank, that's going to be a pretty strong indicator. Should you buy it when it's down 10 bucks? I don't know. Like, I don't know where that roller coaster stops. Like, your euro could get down to $10 if the entire hobby collapses for some period of time. The entire thing is unprecedented. Magic has never... One of the unique things about Magic as a brand is that unlike other major collectible and toy brands, things like Transformers, for instance, Magic has never gone through a period of just not being produced. It has been in production since the day it was released. The Whereas things like you know, many toy lines like Transformers have gone through long period lulls where they just weren't produced at all. So like the original Transformers series came out from, I think, 1984 to 1990 or 91 and then disappeared for a few years and then came back as Generation 2 and then disappeared again for a while, came back as Beast Wars, Beast Machines, then kind of disappears for a little while and then comes back with a vengeance with the advent of the Transformers movies, I believe, in 2007. So brands can be resurrected and magic will, there's no situation here where I think magic is dead forever, but because the brand is too strong in healthy times and putting the eco crisis <laughs> that's looming on the longer horizon aside, the only, once the virus is, is considered to be dealt with, there's going to be a very strong snapback effect in most economies. Um, problem is you don't know which pockets of those economies will be damaged to the extent that there's just that the rubber band has broken and there's no easy way for it to rebound. For instance, if if in fact a large proportion of LGSs go to business, it's extremely hard to reboot that network because the people in those communities that wanted to run those businesses were already running them. Mm-hmm. And, and if they are knocked into financial oblivion, it's going to be very difficult for them to reboot because, especially because Wizards doesn't really have any kind of seed process. They also don't have an underlying uh, flagship network. They never decided to make sure that, say, twenty percent of LGSs were run by and owned by Wizards. You know, they they never extended themselves into retail that way. Largely because Hasbro is mostly a licensing company. That's one of the things people forget. Um, they license other people's brands and they outsource most of the design and production of the related products. So, and all of the distribution for the most part, right? That's why there are, there are such things as distributors because companies like them don't want to be in charge of being logistics uh, specialists for distribution. I guess we're going to get three or four more weeks into this and we're just going to put the cast on hold because what the hell are we going to talk about? Like, well, (laughs) <laughs> well, the only where place anyone's playing magic is online. So, well, that's just it. Uh, as, for tonight, at least, and we'll reconsider again next week. We are refocusing on Magic Online because what I will say is that one of the things that one of the segments, that, the only segment of the Magic brand that I feel confident is on an upswing is Magic Online because everyone's stuck at home. Gaming is through the roof. Internet traffic's through the roof. Everyone's playing Call of Duty. Everybody's playing Doom. Everybody's going to play Magic Online. Um, And as we're going to see, there are a lot of indicators and price trends on Magic Online that suggest more people are picking it up. Um, And it's not... I think it's one of the things where in a three-month horizon, I feel pretty confident that Magic Online is going to be a great place to be. If this thing drags out to a year then you know so a lot of households are going to get to the point where all discretionary spending is going to have to stop. So they'll be much more likely to be grinding on Arena for free than they will be to play something like Magic Online where it's a tickets-based economy. Um, so that's certainly worth considering. 
there's also you know people will just retreat to books and board games the stuff that can be uh, either has extremely high ev per session or can be acquired very cheaply you know you can go out and buy a used book for a few bucks and get 1200 pages to read that'll last you a couple weeks well i'm very excited about uh the entire bottom of my collection falling out because (laughs) because of this and you know no one being able to play magic for six months i'll tell you what it is it is frightening to consider even a little bit the implications of this going on six you know i know that it's going to be this is going to take longer than three months of course to resolve you know entirely it'll probably be sometime next year before this is actually done but it being severe enough that for instance we remain working from home through july or august is is just frightening to say the least a couple things one it's entirely possible that the mismanagement of this virus in the u.s is so bad um and true in some other countries as well that it's just going to burn right through the population like everyone's going to end up getting it 60 or 70 percent of you will and some of you will be completely immune and will just act as carriers. Some of you will get the flu and feel like shit for a week or two, and then you will recover. Hopefully not with lung scarring, as has been reported. Um, one of the factors is apparently your blood type. So you need to know whether your blood type O or A or whatever, um, because A, I believe, is more affected than O, um, based on early evidence out of China. Um, and if it burns through the whole population or the vast majority of it, then the social distancing thing become could become less of a factor. Um, and you might be able to, might have a gap where most people have already been dealt with. Some more people can leave the home. It's kind of like if you've been sick, you can go. And then vaccines appear on the horizon. But all of that is yeah. very much a layman's interpretation of the facts as I currently understand them. Now, in terms of well, that's go ahead. That was it. Just that's the intent, uh, the, the supposed intent of the American government. Um, and I should point out that this is essentially murder, but basically, like rather than essentially what they call flattening the curve and slowing the spread and dealing with it at a, at a longer time frame in a safer manner, just being like, you know what, just let it go. It will eat 2% of the population, and then the rest of us can get back to our lives, and you know the government, capitalism can carry on. So uh, that sounds like the tack that they want to take, which is horrifying, but possibly where we'll end up. So then in terms of like bottom dropping out of collection, I mean, I have about 150,000 US worth of cards in the house at this point that could be pretty quickly knocked to a much lower uh, liquid value. That's fine for me. Like, we have a little bit of a safety net. I've got some solid savings. I am fortunate to be in a position where I'm not going to sweat it too much. I'm not going to fire sale things. I think that if you're in a situation where you just got cut off from your $14 an hour job and you live alone or you are the sole breadwinner of your family and you've got a magic collection, then yeah, it's, t- it's time to start thinking about who will give you a as fair a deal as possible. Um, we actually announced a program on the MTG Price Twitter the other day where if you are someone who is in dire straits and you're trying to unload magic cards, we will help echo 
your sale, uh, you just have to ping us on Twitter and we will retweet it to our network of like 5,000 followers on Twitter. And we will offer the buyer an additional 5% off up to some maximum that we we stated. So basically, if you're trying to sell a $100 card and you were going to sell it for $80, we'll turn it into a $75 sale and cover the other five bucks. And that's a, I think that's admirable and a great plan um, to try and help some of those individuals who might be uh, in worse position. Um, so I'm glad, you know, that that's good. I'm glad that we can do that. I, I'm also not in the position where, you know, my magic collection is impacting my daily finances all. I don't really, you know, think about it in that regard, but there's still the concern of like, well, it sure would suck to lose all of that value, uh, not, I mean, not overnight, but pretty shortly, you know, I don't, I don't want to see 20 or $30,000 of magic card value disappear, especially since, you know, that's not at that point, that's not cards that I own because they are personal acquisitions that just happen to decrease in value. And like, that's fine because I'm not really using them. They're just there. I'm not, I'm not selling them. They're just there as part of my EDH collection. I mean, that I do have that. I have an EDH binder and it doesn't really matter what the prices on that do, but you know, I, most of my collection at this point is there, at least the monetary component is there for profit. So losing all of that would be losing a chunk of that would be, pretty unfortunate thing is that it's not- it would er- it would erase it would erase like the last year or two worth of effort sure and that's terrible and and the reality is that in any investment segment that's going to be the case i mean there's really no difference between real estate holdings um stocks that i hold other collectibles investments i have and magic cards they're all pretty much in the same boat like could have got out at a market peak a few months back could have got out of more of my stocks. I, I, I built up a cash position when I first heard about COVID got out of maybe 10% of my stock holdings, but didn't go any deeper. So, I mean, my stocks are, are tanked. I, I think I lost 45 grand on stocks this month. Um, well, I, I guess I, I thought about stocks differently because is, you know, when I think about stocks, I'm like, that's not something I'm looking to, to move anytime soon. Like, I mean, if you're maybe if you're a more active trader, but like, you know, some of my friends who are in their 30s are like, oh, man, my 401k took a beating this month. And I'm like, yeah, but like, it doesn't really matter because you're not going to be using your 401k for 30 years. So like it's, well, it, it, it matters <laughs> if you're dollar cost averaging, then you then that plan already assumes that there are some major downswings. But that doesn't change the fact that getting out ahead of them is still much, much better. Like if you had a $100,000 stock portfolio and you got out in December, if you you could be up 40000 or 50000 or 60000 more liquid than you are right now, and you could be using that to try to buy the bottom later and doubling your money. So, you, But you can't do that uh, with a 401k though. Well, you can, you can get in and out as long as the cash stays inside your, your investment. Uh, your your protected account, right? I I I, that, I think there are various. So we are getting way outside yeah. <laughs> of my realm of, of expertise. Yeah. Like I I definitely know less about this than a lot of our so, listeners. My understanding is there are various types of 
the 401k and investment plans and the like vanilla one that most people get through their white collar nine to five, you basically have no control over. You just, you dump money into it every month and it's there. It's managed by some other company or what have you uh, that, that controls that. And I don't think that you have any sort of real fine grain control over like, okay, sell all of my the stocks in my 401k and then, you know, I'll buy back in later. I thought it was just like, you, this is how much your 401k is worth. I'll have to, and I'll, then when you cash I'll out, that's how much it's worth. I'll have to look it up for the US because I'm by no means an expert there. But the equivalent in Canada is called the RRSP, Registered Retirement Savings Plan. And the way that account works is that you can hold any assets you want in it. Now, if you move it outside of that account to your checking account or something, then yes, you have tax consequences immediately. But as long as the if, yeah. if you sell stocks and leave the cash in your RRSP, there's no there's no tax implications on that at all. Um, okay. And so I, you know, we I'd have to get a little deeper, and maybe we need to bring an expert on to to give us some more information if we want to start talking about that stuff. But the bottom line but, is this: the, all the, the point I was trying to make more broadly was that all of these assets have moved down in sync. So you don't need necessarily need to feel any worse about your magic cards than you do about your stocks or about your, you know, the inability to go liquid on your home if you needed to right now, because it's definitely no one's out there shopping for houses. Um, yeah, I mean, I, my, I, my position was mostly that assuming my knowledge of American 401ks is roughly correct, that for a 30-year-old, their 401k tanking right now isn't as big of a deal because there was nothing they could do about it anyways, and it's not going to impact, the, you know, they're not going to touch that money for another 30 years. But for but any type of investment in stocks beyond, you know, your 401k, uh, any sort of more active trading platform, yes, that's a, that's a whole other story, right? Whether it's real estate or um, or stocks or magic or cards. Ni- or and, Nike you know, real estate or funny or whatever. Yeah, and real estate's a funny one too. I don't know if you've, I'm sure you have caught some of these stories about Airbnb and that whole thing is imploding really fast because all these people canceled all these trips and these aren't like, it's not like hotel chains where they have, you know, a fair bit of money in reserve. Uh, You know, they own the building or what have you. They can deal with like probably a loss of visitors better than others. You have all these people running Airbnb chains who suddenly like have to pay the mortgage on this property, but have no income coming on it. I said, read one story about some guy who was had like had rented something like twenty apartments in a in a major metropolitan area. Uh, he rented bare apartments, furnished them, and then was Airbnb in the apartments. And, like that was his full time job, and he had like twenty of these apartments. And then suddenly he's got no bookings in the month of April. And he's got, you know, like $50,000 worth of rent payments to make with absolutely zero money. (laughs) It's like, yeah, yeah, he's clearly not making those payments. And all of those people who are renting those apartments are suddenly not getting any money. They're going to need to put moratoriums on both mortgages and rent to get through this correctly. The... In Canada, they've already got mortgage relief in the pipeline. But they don't have rent relief declared yet. And so the concern there is that you're going to be paying rent to somebody who doesn't have to pay their mortgage when it's the people that pay rent that probably need more help. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) those the pitchforks are going to come out pretty shortly here and politics is going to get real nasty. 
um, wow. as, as people suddenly realize that they actually loved socialism all along. I I I hope that we get a couple converts here along the way. Uh, yeah. So the bottom line is this: I, I think that you, uh, uh, um, if you can afford to, a measured approach. No, no need to panic. But you know, if you feel like your family is going to need more of a safety net, then start looking into your options for unloading chunks of your collection that you may not necessarily need or need or want in proportion to that the desire and need for that safety net. If you don't have any immediate need, I don't actually think that holding a large magic collection is a whole lot different than, you know, trying to ride your stocks through this crisis. You're going to miss out on some gains and it might be slow, could take 6, 12, 18 months to get back to where you were, but that's normal in investing. That happens every 7 to 10 years more or less, and it's really hard to time it to get out at the right time. Very, very few people are going to be telling stories about how they sold their entire magic collection last month and aren't they smart for having ca- moved to cash. Um, yeah. I mean, not even to start d- discussing what huge stimulus packages where they're printing money out of thin air means about inflation and about the value of money in general and how the value of all of your assets is being eroded <laughs> through that process. Uh, we, could, we could go on for hours about all that. So anyway, let's talk about how we are completely restructuring our our four segments well before we get to that i have to tell everyone that despite the tone in my voice i'm glad to be here and looking forward to sharing valuable information with all of you our show is produced by mtgprice.com the leading mtg finance community sign up today mtgprice.com to track your specs chat on discord and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby and i bet you have a thought you'd like to share before i tell our listeners about the show this mtg week. fast finance is proudly sponsored by cool stuff inc where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock including all the best in magic the gathering singles sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles use the promo code finance5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com save five percent off your order and support this podcast pretty sure by the time you guys hear this uh they'll, they'll have a sale on on mystery booster boxes at i think 129.99 or something like that um <laughs> this week and i'm sure cool stuff though they are better financed than most would love to have your online business to help them through this crisis um if you can afford to do so please consider it um so four segments but not for once this is a t- 212th episode i think the first time ever we are changing the order of these segments uh i would have to go back and look through i feel like once or twice we've had three segment shows but this might be yeah you're probably right this is the first time we've actually rearranged it uh so listen closely i don't want you guys to get confused you 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 know you've listened to this 211 times you've got you've mostly got this down pat but we're throwing you a curveball Segment one is our MTGO metagame week in review. We're going to look at the moto or the, the, you know, the metagame in general for standard pioneer, modern and legacy. Um, And we're doing this to kind of set the tone for what MTGO looks like right now, because a lot, you know, while you may be familiar with like I am the paper markets and economy and and what magic looks like out in that world that's different online so we're going to use that this segment to kind of give you some framework for what's happening segment two will be our top mtgo movers um, with 
the cards that have seen the most movement in, on MTGO the last week or so, uh, kind of give you an idea of what's moving over there. Segment three, we'll be getting into our topic of the week. That will be uh, an intro to MTGO speculation um, and shorting with uh, a Discord um, pro trader. Uh, he goes by the name Oko Assassin, who will be joining us to talk about it because he's uh, certainly more well-versed on it than I am at this point. Um, and can, you know, you and you, the two of you can have a conversation. And, uh, finally, segment four our cards to watch. Uh, we'll be going over a couple picks with our, our guest here, um, all moto related. And, you know, I guess now is a good time to point out that this is an MTGO show because I, we, I don't really have a way to talk about paper magic with you guys at the moment, right? Like there are no events happening in your stores. People aren't really getting together to play EDH, um, I, I can't possibly talk about what cards to speculate on, even on a longer term, because we just have no idea what's going to happen here. I feel like it would be, it w- would be uh, irresponsible. Irresponsible. Yeah, I to, think to say run to, out and buy a card because it's going to go up next week because we had it's almost yeah. certainly not going to go up next week, and we're operating on a long yeah. horizon as we started talking about last week. And yeah, there, there are still even, some even great, long there are still some great picks on a twelve month horizon, if. <laughs> you think you can see the future the yeah uh that's going to be increasingly sketchy until it's not so uh we're going to focus on magic online which is a the most vibrant part of the magic economy and go from there the um well so starting here on segment one our mtgo metagame we can review i'm looking at the s- standard metagame tab here now uh i'm over on goldfish and I have the button in the top right here for online and paper, and that changes the pricing, but not the metagame data. So one one of the things that is, sorry, you're looking at, if you're looking at the standard metagame, it has the standard metagame data. Okay. So that, and so these metagame data are for, are essentially supposed to be. Um, it's only ever drawn from. Platform agnostic. No, 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 no. The, 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 oh, because it's all online correct, data. and it always has been. So okay. in some ways, nothing's really changed here. We've always been referencing Magic Online data when exploring the metagame. We've always looked at Magic Online lists. But in up until now, it's been as a predictor of what will happen in paper in the coming weeks. Right now, there is no paper. So it's, it's a predictor of uh, nothing more than, you know, what might happen in paper later if paper reemerges, if when, um, probably a when, not an if. So one of the things that jumps out at me here for the standard meta game is that a full fifteen percent of the online meta is Rakdos Aristocrats, which is a emergent deck versus where we were at a month ago, um, where you were seeing Corvold decks that were tricolor. This is more or less just black red. This is Cauldron Familiars, four Croxa Titan of Death's Hunger. Four Meyer Triton, three Priests of the Forgotten Gods, four Mayhem Devil, two Midnight Reaper, four Woe Strider, four Claim in the Firstborn, four Witches Oven, and three Timurit Calls the Dead. Um, you know, this is a aristocrat strategy. You're trying to cycle things in and out of your graveyard and, you know, ping your opponent to death with your Mayhem Devils. Uh, interesting because on Magic Online, this is one of the things that 
has always made looking at the meta online a little suspect is that percentage of meta is not the same as win percentage. In the case of Rakdos Aristocrats, this is a $200 deck, whereas the next most played deck, Banth Midramp, uh, is 12.5% of the meta, but is a $542 price tag. So the without knowing the win percentages, which Wizards no longer really allows anybody to publish, including Goldfish, who used to publish them, um, unless you're playing these formats, you don't and paying attention to the tournament results, you don't really know for sure whether Aristocrats is that high a percentage of the meta because it's a great deck or because it's a cheap deck that it can hold its own most of the time. Yeah, it's that makes this much more challenging than it would be. Uh, and I think, you know, typically the best way to get a feel for that that I've found is to check the events that have um, a standing. So rather than just the five O list, which we know are curated, um, the, you know, what is it? The challenges or whatever, they have an actual first, second, third, so forth, because that will tell you, okay, like if, for instance, the inverter deck is crushing pioneer, you know, even if it only shows up twice in the five O daily list, I can look over at the top eight from this particular event and see four of them were Demir inverter and be like, okay, so clearly this deck is oppressive, you know, based on the top eight results. But that's such a small sampling that it's really hard to draw too much meaningful out of that. The metagame has to be pretty far out of balance before you can get a good sense of where things look based on just a couple top eights. Well, here's the best we can do. Standard challenge on March 22nd, two days ago. First place was to a Wilderness Reclamation uh, deck. Uh, looks like it's Teamer Colors, uh, Brazen Borrower, Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, Storm's Wrath, Aether Gust, uh, Chemister's Insight, Expansion Explosion, Grow Spiral Op, Scorching Dragonfire, Thassa's Intervention, and Four Wilderness Reclamation. And then that black-red deck pops up in second. So we see some confirmation that this is actually a top eight deck. High percentage of the meta because it's good uh, as well as cheap. Um, then we, in third place, we have uh, the Kenrith Jeskai Fires of Invention build that's been floating around in the format for a while. The black-red deck shows up again in fourth place. Um, more of a ramp strategy in fifth with blue-green cards, Nisa Who Shakes the World, Teferi Time, Raveler, actually Banth, I guess, to Elspeth Conquers Death, Uro, etc. Uh, and then the black-red deck again in sixth place and in eighth place. So four of the top eight on that black-red deck. So it looks like a stalwart in the format, at least for now. Okay, so I mean, we know it's pretty legitimate then. And then, you know, the Jeskai Fires deck is 122 6 uh, percentage of the meta online, Mono Red Agra, about the same. That deck's uh, notable because it's only $146. So if you're looking to just jump in to standard on Magic Online as opposed to on Arena, that's probably your low, uh, low-hanging low fruit. Saltine Midrange at uh, 10% of the meta, 547. Teamer Reclamation deck that I just mentioned is 10% of the meta, about 420. Teamer Adventures at $300 and about 5% of the meta, and Azorius Control at 5% of the meta and about $200. So Rakdos Aristocrats and Azorius Control and Mono Red Aggro are the $150 to $200 options there. What I'm finding a little challenging about this is 
I want to be able to talk about, oh, well, like, you know, Kroxa is showing up in the most popular deck. There was a run on his stock in price a couple of weeks ago. He's receded since then, but it looks like this may actually be a viable deck. So, you know, here's what I think about your opportunities to buy in on the card, whether you should or not. That's what I'd like to be able to say, but I can't. Because I don't think that I, I don't, not that I don't think, I know that I don't have enough insight into the moto market forces to be able to speak to whether or not you can look at this and know, or at least I can't look at it and know whether or not a card like Kroxo is worth thinking about. Well, we're going um, to we're we're talk to our guests those forces. And, and get a better sense well, of what the, what the conditions are um, in the Magic Online market. And you can also, at minimum, start with, doing a little bit of baseline research. You can look at Croxid Titan of Death's Hunger, online prices posted on Goldfish, and see that he hit a low of about five tickets back in mid-February and has been doing more or less nothing but going up ever since. Uh, peaking at about sure, 20, sure. currently at 16 or so, I'd guess he probably has some runway to get up over 20 before all is said and done. Yeah, I guess my, my thought was was more that uh, it's it's awkward because I don't know how, how else to talk about these deck lists other than in terms of, you know, th- these are cards worth caring about. And like this is this this card's a trap, but this one looks good because I'm like, I, I don't I mean, I can see the price data in front of me, but it's still hard to extrapolate that. Um, I just I just feel like I'm kind of rudderless here. <laughs> well, we'll see if we can we can work on that. The uh, I mean, part of it. Uh, part of the thing I think we, we can direct people's eyeballs to is prices of decks. I mean, a lot of our listeners are probably just sitting at home looking for things to do and have been considering getting into Magic Online if they weren't already. Um, and, you know, a fun deck that has high replay value and is relatively cheap and puts up decent percentages is and can roll flexibly with the meta is where a lot of those people are going to want to be. So, you know, just... MTG Finance has never been just about speculation. It's always been about making the game cheaper as well. So if of, if, of course if we have to shift gears here a little bit uh, away from how to make money, which which is doable on Magic Online right now, but takes time and effort and also resources, and in, and over to well maybe you don't want to risk anything on that, but you do are willing to put two hundred bucks into the system to play your favorite format. We can certainly give you some tips there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, well, yes. Although some, yeah, I, I, you know, I've got a, I've got one up here. You're going to be better at this at, at the outset here than I am. Here's my recommendation: uh, Rakdos Aristocrats, cheap. Who cares? Whatever, right? We've had Aristocrats around since Gate Crash. Move on with your life. Bant mid range, expensive. Just guy, expensive. Mono red aggro. You know, if you're not Lee Sharp, who cares? Scroll down the page to the budget deck section. Grawl sneak attack, 35 tickets. That's where I want to be. Ilhar Grace Boar the, is the, uh, the, the front page art for that deck. Get in. I want to play this deck. <laughs> I open it up and I'm getting Incubation Druid, Perforos. Yeah. All right. This is the deck you guys should be playing. A completely reasonable approach to be making use of Goldfish's budget deck list. I mean, that's always been a useful feature and even more so now. Um, all right, so taking a look at over at Pioneer, uh, the metagame is 15% Demir Inverter, hasn't caught any bans, very unlikely Wizards is going to jump on any kind of bandwagon <laughs> anytime soon. I, I would guess that this while the crisis is going on, we're just going to see zero bans. 
Yeah, I, I am inclined to agree with you. It doesn't seem like they're going to be eager to eat any sort of PR scuffle at all if they don't have to. Um, and also, I don't think, you know, Demir is the most represented deck in the format, but 15% I don't think is um, outsized for what you would expect. And, you know, Mono White Devotions is behind it at just about 12%, which is not a is not enough of a gap to make me think that Demir is a problem. Yeah, and we, we're pretty we're more in tune with the Pioneer meta than we are standard because we've been caring more about it for the last three months or so. Um, yeah. Uh, so Demir Inverter, Mono White Devotion, Bant Spirits, Mono Green Walker, Seltite Delirium, Missourius Control, Lotus Breach, and Nib Delight is everything I see at my FNM every time I go to play Pioneer, and it doesn't look like much has shifted lately. Um, the cheapest deck out of the, the, those top eight decks is Lotus Breach at $240. Um, deck doesn't seem to be a problem because it's oh. relatively easy to hate out of the sideboard. Um, and the most expensive two hundred and forty dollars. You're looking at the paper prices. Ah, sorry, you're correct. That's even that's even cheap. Lotus Breach is actually like the winner here uh, uh, at a hundred tickets online, yeah. which because it's a lot of commons and uncommons. Yeah, good point. Um, whereas as opposed to Sultai Delirium, which is four hundred and eighty ticks, and Niftlight, which is almost six hundred ticks. Um, even though Niftlight is almost, I'm almost pretty pretty sure is more like tier 1.5 or tier 2 right now um so whichever catches your fancy out of sultite delirium demir inverter mono white devotion band spirits mono green walkers or blue white control you're probably good to go um yeah the if we cross-reference that <laughs> against the pioneer super qualifier that was held today uh first place was actually blue red robots uh, and Soul Artifact, uh, Ghost Fire Blades, Bomat Couriers, and Ginger Brutes, and all that. Uh, second place was a mono red mid range deck with Rampaging Ferocidons, Rabble Masters, Eidolon of the Great Rebel, uh, Bone Crusher Giant, Torbrand, Thane of Red Fell, etc., etc. A couple of Ember Cleaves, as per usual. Um, and this is where it gets interesting. I noticed that Ashiok Nightmare Muse has been showing up in Pioneer more often. Um, it's a one of in the third place deck here, which is an inverter deck. Uh, and there's one in the main, one in the sideboard. Uh, and then I also caught sight of it in the fifth place deck, which is the Sultai Delirium uh, build, where it's also one in the main, uh, zero in the sideboard. I'm not, I haven't been watching the streamers lately. And of course, there's been no paper. Uh, uh, video coverage so i i'm unaware of what it is that is drawing players towards you know a single copy of ashiok um to present as a threat like whether it's just a generally good card or they're using it against a specific card or strategy yeah i would have to do a much closer dive on the metagame to get a sense of what's happening there um because he could be he uh, yeah it's such a it feels like it's so specific like like what like i mean i guess he's a pretty mid-rangey planeswalker so you can bring him in if you're expecting to have to grind your opponent out but like is there another trick that we're unaware of at the moment i'm not sure so anyway this is the the same stuff we're seeing that in the medalist is appearing here. Fourth place in this super qualifier was uh, the Underworld Breach deck. Fifth was another Sultai, uh, was the Sultai build I mentioned before. 
Uh, that was also uh, sixth place was another inverter deck. Seventh was inverter. Uh, eighth was another underworld breach deck. So um, looks like pretty tightly clustered uh, comparisons between what's top baiting in the bigger tournaments on Magic Online versus what makes up the general meta population. So it doesn't look like there are huge uh, cost considerations um, and you can basically just play whatever you want that you think has a chance that fits into your budget. Did you did you by any chance scroll down on the budget page of Pioneer? Uh, not just now. <laughs> the... The name for the Assault Formation deck is Butts and Taxes. Nice. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. I, I appreciate it, that uh, that you guys. That's good. That's, That's real good. good. And it's, 20, uh, and it's and, 23 tickets, so how can you not play it? Right, yeah. I feel like you, that, you know, you're morally obligated to play that deck. But you do have Dubious Challenge at under 40 tickets right next to it, which is... that's I. I mean, I believe that there is a a deck legal in Pioneer that plays Dubious Challenge, and I am not surprised that it's a budget strategy. I am shocked that it even warrants a header down here as a deck that exists. Like my Spellweaver Helic Flame Jab uh, Worldfire deck from modern years ago was technically a deck that existed but i would not expect to see it show up on any website tracking at 20 ticks you basically only have to play one of these decks for a night to get your value out of it and if it, yeah. if it turns out to be more fun or more competitive than that and it lasts you a few lasts you for a few weeks you're doing very well yeah i mean heck it 20 tickets i mean that's less than the the entry fee for some of these you can buy all eight of the recommended budget decks for pioneer for less than buying Sultai Delirium. So if you like variety more than you like winning, that could be a winning strategy for you. Yeah. And that gives you the ability to diversify your portfolio so that if any of those end up being good, <laughs> then, you know, you're in good shape there. Sultai Delirium, everyone already knows what's going on there. And see, that's 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 valid and useful insight into this buy all the budget decks it will cost you less than the top tier one you'll have way more fun playing them you can still probably get some good wins with them and these and the salt eye deck those are all known quantities all those prices are going to be a lot more stable and if any of these budget decks actually end up good you could see some great spikes on your staples all right, so shifting over to the modern metagame, uh, Eldrazi Tron taking up 7%. So notable here that both Standard and Pioneer feature decks that are taking up 15% of the meta, but Modern is looking much more diverse. Eldrazi Tron is the highest meta percentage in Modern right now online at just 7%. Bant Snowblades, another 7%. That deck's notable for being 800-plus tickets right now. 4.5% uh, roughly for Jund, about the same for Tron, Mono Red, uh pretty close urza emery decks at four percent dredge at three amulet titan at three um this format is pricier to play so if you're looking for uh budget options here you're looking at some pretty random stuff i would probably say soul sisters is the most successful long-term deck in the budget list here that has been able to sneak wins in certain metas 44 tickets again hard to go wrong um, but I think you're going to find that modern is a less forgiving format <laughs> for budget text. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I don't know. 
if I entirely agree with that, because there are some real powerful sleepers in modern that are dirt cheap for a variety of reasons. Um, like just because modern is so big, there are extremely powerful cards that are essentially underutilized in the format. And then occasionally somebody finds a deck for them and it's obscene. Uh, I'm reminded of the Gorio's vengeance builds back when all of that stuff was cheap and it was like, you know, Gorio's vengeance was cheap and uh, the nourishing shawl was cheap and world spine worm was cheap and all those cards were dirt cheap, but they're all powerful. And then somebody finally put the pieces together and it was um, a really good budget deck. So it feels like I, I feel like modern can have is more likely to have those sort of breakout events because knowing your deck and having something that works well can get you a lot of territory. Whereas like in pioneer, it seems like the power level is like, it's harder to have those cards that are wildly powerful that just no one can quite find a spot for because the card pool is so much more shallow. Sure. So over on the, that makes sense. Not that any of this matters. It does. The modern preliminary, uh, five O lists, including, uh, Urza Emery, uh, uh, the snow, uh, deck, but not snow blade version. This is, Seven Jaces and Teferis, Ice Fang Quaddles, Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, etc. I've sold a ton of Quaddles in this in this environment. I think I've sold six hundred dollars worth of Quaddles in the last three weeks. So, um, one of the most uh, in demand cards in Magic uh, up until this point. Uh, another five another five O list here is the Green Red Combo Aggro, the one that uses Hidden Herbalists and Burning Tree Emissaries to dump their hand onto the board really quickly. And then finishes mm-hmm. you with like uh, lightning bolts and Atarka's commands, wild Nakatals and Tarmogoyfs, bushwhackers, etc. Um, also, a Karn the Great Creator, Dryad of Elysian Grove, Amulet of Vigor build five uh, owed in this league. And if I was looking at you know two cards that I would love in paper right now, if this whole virus thing wasn't going on, um, <laughs> Dryad of the Elysian Grove and Gilded Goose Extended Art foils around twenty. Um, and the hmm. Dryad of the Legion grows around 15 would still be pretty close to the top of my list. The Dryad, 15 for the Dryad is, is that the extended art? Yeah. That, is that, that's not foil though, is it? No, their foils are, are very pricey. Gotta be 60 or something, right? Mm, I would imagine you'll get a shot at those pretty low here as people, that's the kind of stuff people are going to try to shed. You know, the path of least first. resistance is to sell your most expensive cards first. So yeah, um, some of that stuff is well, bad I- to come down. I meant like the foil dried Elysians, foil extended art dryads were probably might have been fifty, you know, sixty three weeks ago, four sure. weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows in two weeks? Um, yeah, currently, yeah, modern is currently uh, you can uh, grab one at. I like that they've got a budget deck bucks. down here for modern called Hammer Time. That uses uh, it's a Boros with Sigarda's aid and all that good stuff. That looks amusing. <laughs> Another, the only other 5-0 list from the, the modern prelim was uh, a humans list um, that actually looks fairly classic. Uh, doesn't look like some of the newer ones we've seen lately. This one looks like a humans list from two years ago. Mm. Um, all right, so... Do it with the time, man. All right, so that's our metagame week in review on Magic Online. Uh, lots of cool decks to play. Um, and we'll get into a little bit more of what's been moving as a result. 
uh, as people have shifted their attention to Magic Online, uh, our top movers this week, to be very clear, is digital, not paper. We're looking at MTGO top movers. Over in the paper world, things have been largely flat. There wouldn't be a whole lot to talk about there. There's always an assortment of random foils that uh, run out of inventory and supposedly spike, but nothing of any consequence um, that we felt the need to flag. So we're looking at Magic Online prices. Uh, Fabled Passage, non-foils going from $12 to almost $18 for about a 50% gain. It's a Pioneer standard EDH staple. All of the play, the play across all of those is probably up on Magic Online this week, so no huge supply surprise. Ashnod's Altar is mostly an EDH play, um, going from eight to almost twelve this week for about a fifty percent gain. Suggests that EDH players are moving their activities onto Magic Online. Uh, of course, uh, keep in mind that Magic Arena can only support standard, um, so. All of the other formats are played on, uh, except Brawl, I suppose, are played in Historic. Historic? Sounds about right. Historic, played, yeah. Yeah, are played uh, over on Magic Online. Wooded Foothills up from 7 to almost 11. Modern Legacy EDH play. Um, that green-red deck doing well in the modern tournaments might have something to do with that. Ancient Tomb, the UMA version going from 14 to 21 on the back of Legacy EDH play, I would assume. And then Dockside Extortionist from 11 to 18, $7 gain for about 60% plus. Uh, yeah, that's purely an EDH card. And these pure EDH plays are huge signals to me that EDH play is moving online this week. Yeah, and the gentlemen, the individuals in our Discord, um, I noticed we're talking about this, so credit to them here. Uh, and I'm sorry, I don't have your names in front of me at the, at the moment, but they were talking about how there's all they were seeing a big uptick in all these EDH cards because your weekly groups who can no longer get together and play are doing so online because you know they look at Moto and realize they can rebuy um, they can buy into an EDH deck maybe that they've never played before but they've wanted to or what have you for wildly different prices than paper. So some well not all the prices are cheaper online uh, it gives them an opportunity to buy into edh decks that they might not have the option to in paper because the pricing is so different and you're seeing all these local groups kind of reform and play edh on moto rather than in paper uh so that makes sense here which means that i would imagine there's probably still some opportunity out there on the edh side of things but uh, we can talk more about that with our guests when we get there but the more popular that stuff gets and the longer you wait the worse those prices will get because all the pricing on magic online is algorithm driven so every time somebody buys one the price edges up a little bit Mm. Um, the only place where that's not true is when you're not buying from bots if you buy from another person there's no impact the the rest of that economy doesn't feel that ripple at all but if it goes through a bot then it does okay um so also on the list, Tropical Island, uh, 5 to $9, 70% plus gains. That's legacy and EDH play for sure. Tabernacle at Pendle Vale, ditto. This one from 9 to 17, 75% gains. And these are gains in a week. Those are very solid. Like there's, if you've got tickets and you know what's going on in these formats, there is definitely money to be made here. Uh, Carpet of Flowers, $5 to $9. Uh, 77% gains uh, as an EDH play as well, although it does see Legacy play uh, too, Carpet of Flowers does. Uh, Teferi's Protection is a pure EDH play, 3 to 550, that's a 80% gain. Divining Witch threw me for a loop, 
uh, $4 to $7.50. Uh, it's 80% plus gains. That's apparently out of a Doomsday Oracle deck in Legacy, where they're running three copies of that in the sideboard. I guess as an alternative way to find combo pieces if they're facing specific forms of hate out of the sideboard. Hmm. I've seen this card on the stock page, I think, actually in paper, and I just sort of dismissed it out of hand. But uh, okay, I can understand what you're saying here. It's two mana tap. It's a two mana creature with an activated ability to mana tap, discard a card, choose a card name, exile the top six cards of your library, then reveal cards until you hit the card with the chosen name. Uh, put it in your hand and exile all their cards revealed this way. So I would imagine the goal here is you activate Divine Witch and name a card that isn't in your deck and you just exile your library. It, yeah, it, it functions like a demonic consultation, right? Yeah, I think that's what it's supposed to mimic. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and then the last one on the list is Alms Collector. Uh, 244 to 522, 113% gain, another pure EDH play. So... Plenty of, of EDH-specific cards with really solid gains on Magic Online this week. Yeah. I mean, clearly, there was some money to be made, and I'm sure there's probably more to be made if you know anything about it, which uh, I guess gives us a good opportunity to bring in our guest here. So let's go get him, uh, and we can go from there. Alrighty, we're heading on over to segment three here. We're going to bring in our... Uh, member expert oko assassin uh pretty much runs our magic online channel in the mtg price pro trader discord uh, a guy who's been super active uh, on magic online for the last uh, several months uh, buying and selling on a daily basis um, also uh, co-authored the article that we ran on mtg price about shorting magic cards on magic online and uh, it's just generally up to speed as the entire magic economy uh, at least most of the good opportunities shifts from paper to magic online, which was, I suppose, uh, it isn't new. It's just more uh, solitary <laughs> in the absence of a vibrant paper market this week. Uh, so, Oko, welcome to the cast. Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, thanks, Travis, for having me on. Uh, longtime listener uh, and, you know, joining the Discord uh, probably about a year ago, um, but being active um pretty heavily on magic online for the last uh probably four or five months um this go around i was very active as well uh, a couple of years ago before the market crashed uh and then you know all the prospects for magic online kind of went away for a while uh, but things are back and very vibrant so happy to share some thoughts so okay I so for- i am well, hold on I, i'm looking forward to talking about moto here but i gotta ask you a question first uh Please don't make me call you Oko Assassin for the rest of the cast. Can I like call you Fred? Can we use like Fred? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. All right. So <laughs> what, what did you want to ask him, James? So Fred, um, <laughs> tell us, just give us a general overview of the uh, fact, unique factors to Magic Online that people need to be considering if they are looking to, you know, go beyond just participating by playing on Magic Online and actually want to start speculating or shorting. Sure. So online, I mean, for folks that follow paper uh, magic and magic finance, you have an inherent advantage um, because the fundamentals of Magic Online, most of them are pretty similar to paper. 
where it differs is the speed um, and supply and all of the sorts of things. Paper takes a long time to adjust to meta changes to you know new decks, things like that. Uh, for the Magic Online economy, it really changes um, as soon as things happen. So people are following pros and and kind of Magic Online uh, grinders, uh, Twitter feeds, and Twitch, and they're acting in real time based on the results that are coming out. So when a deck top eights um, a tournament on the weekend on Magic Online, the prices for those cards start to move dramatically right away. Uh, and so if it's a new hot deck, I mean the cards will spike you know overnight from you know, basically worthless in some cases, all the way to a dollar to five dollars, uh, and they go down just as quickly. So, you know, one of the biggest things that's different from the paper market is you can't even do a quick flip of a few days or weeks. Some of these, I mean, you can obviously, but some of these are, you know, you have to be monitoring by the hour, uh, you know, checking in because you could miss your out uh, and things can, you know, rise and fall just really dramatically. Um, additionally, you know, just learning the the system. Uh, Magic Online is a very archaic program. Uh, and once you know it, um, folks tend to actually love it because it, it has everything you need. Uh, but getting to know it is, is a little bit of a challenge. And so there's not you know, that direct vendor that you can go to, you have to use kind of bots and all the bots are different. Um, they have different algorithms. They adjust differently to the market. And so you really have to look, you have to sit and spend a lot of time learning the basic ground infrastructure before jumping in. Yeah. So I think that's, yeah. that's one of the things that absolutely needs to be highlighted, especially for anybody who's just never been on magic online. Uh, even if they are, and maybe even more so if they're gamers that have, you know, broader experience on PC or console, the the specifics of the Magic Online economy would probably seem very, very strange. If you're the kind of person that got into digital trading card games via something like Hearthstone and then later migrated to, say, Arena, where there is basically no functional economy on cards at all, there's just an exchange rate for trading in wild cards or whatever to get other cards but there's no actual functional marketplace between individuals, then the way that the Magic Online thing runs would just seem bizarre. And and basically what it is is that there's essentially a very rudimentary message board set up where you have a certain number of characters you can post at any given time advertising the cards you want to buy or sell, and it's not linked into any kind of master database of those cards. You're just basically using shorthand notation for the names of the cards and indicating whether you're buying or selling at a certain number of tickets. We'll get to tickets in a second. Um, and so you could be buying from an individual in, which will have virtually no impact on the online economy because the bots won't pick up on that transaction at all. And uh, Wizards of the Coast doesn't uh, in any kind of visible way um, control or interact with prices on Magic Online other than to add supply to the market, which we'll talk about shortly um but if you deal with the bots what you're actually doing is interacting with a business that runs a little piece of software that piggybacks on the magic online code and can interact as though they were a real person in a trade window so you open a trade window, you can either offer them tickets for cards that they have in inventory, or you can dump your cards into the page and they'll tell you in the little chat window how much they will pay for them. And so your transactions are going on vis-a-vis, -vis, for the most part, an automated 
software interface uh, that is in very rudimentary form. And when, in reference to when you were talking about how fast things can move, one of the reasons that's true is that most of the bots are functioning on the back of a very relatively simple algorithm. The more people buy a card, the more demand that it detects over a short period of time, the more likely the bot is to increase the price of the card in small increments. So, and simultaneously, they also tend to limit the number of copies you can buy at any one time. So most of the bots will only allow four copies at a time. I think some allow eight or 12 copies, if I'm not mistaken, or you can do a little end run around their system by going to different bots in their network. Um, but, yeah, that's correct. But, but yeah, and just a point on that. I mean, the scalability right. um, for Magic Online is a lot less than the scalability of paper. So, for example, you can buy 100 copies of a card you think is a long-term investment in paper, have it be a buy list play. On Magic Online, every four cards you're buying is a, is a significant time investment of going to the bot, buying it, you know, maybe doing it again and again, and every time making sure that price adjustment isn't, isn't too much, right? And to when you got to figure out when that cutoff point is, when it stops uh, making sense. Yeah. Well, that's it, funny that you say that because as someone who has operated effectively only in paper, and you know, I've used Moto a handful of times when I was playing Magic much more regularly, and I got I hated every second of it. Um, I would have anticipated the scalability of Moto to be much better than paper because, I mean, I respect that like buying 100 copies of a card is more annoying on Moto than it is on paper because in paper I can go to one guy. Maybe I can go to one guy who's got a ton of listings. I can do two or three vendors and buy them all at once. Whereas on Moto, I have to buy four at a time. But at the same time, I can then go and sell all of my copies on Moto. It feels like quickly and easily relative to paper where i have to you know find the buy list who's buying enough and then like chances are somebody there isn't one paper vendor who wants all those cards so i'm split across multiple vendors i just i guess it makes sense but it's not wouldn't be my first instinct that it would be less scalable on moto rather than more well there's a, di- there's a difference right. between the uh, proximity to liquidity which is certainly better on moto in the sense that you're only a few button clicks away from dumping your card. Um, whereas you have to, unless you're, you know, pushing into a CK buy list on the day of a, a banning announcement or something, generally you're trying to find a buyer. It's going to take however long it takes based on the market dynamics and, and how popular the card is. Um, so the liquidity is strong, stronger on Magic Online, but because of the four card limit and the fact that the bots are incrementally adjusting all the time, if you're holding 100 copies and you're trying to dump it to the same bot, it's not going to go so well. Um, yeah. You have to... So part of the research that uh, forms kind of like your preliminary setup to even address this, this market is getting a list together of the various bots that you can work with. And that list mm-hmm. just isn't really that long. You'll, you'll, when I was doing it regularly and managing 20,000 tickets, it was you know six or seven bot chains that I would use on a regular basis, and I pretty much ignored it almost every other opportunity. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, yeah, I think it actually is scaled down because Moto's economy went um, kind of downhill when Arena came out uh, you know, for the last few years. A lot of the bots that I used to use when I did this years ago have kind of went defunct. Um, and now I think it's really, you know, goat bots, card hoarder, um, and MTGO traders are the are really the big ones. Um, and then there's others. Um, so, for example, today I sold 40 copies of um, Pr- uh, Prismatic Vista uh, be- for reasons we'll talk about later. 
uh, and there it was kind of a flash sale. And so I had to go to a number. I used the forums and word search and find people that were buying it um, because I needed to get it out the door right away. And I had 40 copies, which, you know, if you give that all to one vendor, it will crash, crash the market. Right. And so I guess the other one that jumps that I remember using a lot was MTGO Wiki Price because they, mm-hmm. they have a bot that they sell to people. And they aggregate the data from the people that are using their bot software on a single website at mggowikiprice.com. And they... Oh, it's back up now. It had gone down for uh, like a month or two. Right. But it looks like it's back up now. Yeah. Yeah. So I I remember using that quite a bit. I'm not sure to what extent that's still on your radar. Yeah, I mean, it used to be a thing. Um, So I just went, for example, to uh, Oko, just... For, for my name's sake and uh there's only three bots on there as sellers so i think mtg uh wiki price used to be a pretty good resource and i did use it uh but now i i, I haven't used it every time i check it it, it seems re- irrelevant at this point there's just not enough not enough people using the software mm-hmm. anymore yeah got it um so talk about talk about ticks for a second the magic economy does not function on un- united states dollars it functions on magic online tickets and because you need the tickets to enter events, um, and it's also the only currency they allow for uh, accounts that are within the system to trade with each other. So you can't give somebody $10. You have to acquire tickets somehow and then use the tickets to buy and sell Magic cards. Um, so one of the things that's important is to be tracking the uh, available uh, exchange rate between the U.S. dollar and ticks. Because you don't get one for one, even though ticks are ostensibly based on the U.S. dollar. Um, most of the time, if you're selling ticks at the end of your speculation period, if you're trying to go back to to cash, then you're only going to get what, like one anywhere from 0.88 to 0.95, I guess, has been the range I've I've seen over time. Yep, and it goes up generally when new sets release. Um, so tickets are at their prime when everyone wants to draft uh, because. Unless you're winning packs from an event, you need tickets to draft. And so uh, when a new set releases, so in mid-April, that number um, for what a ticket is worth it usually goes up to between $0.93 cents to $0.95 cents on the dollar. Um, right now, it ranges between $0.86 cents on card hoarder to, I think the last time I checked MTOGO Traders, it was like $0.93 cents or $0.92. Cents. So it ranges. But yeah, it's all about supply and demand. And, you know, sometimes the vendors just get, you know, they buy a, a big, a lot, and then they just drop their prices because they don't need ticks at the time. And so sometimes there's a very short term, relatively low percentage return play to be made where you could, you know, if somebody's willing to sell you 100 ticks at, say, 0.88, and then on the draft weekend for Icoria, because nobody's going to be able to go to their LGS to play it, people are going to be drafting it online, Um you know, ticks could spike yep. to 0.95 or whatever, and you could make seven cents on the dollar or something like that. Minus. Yeah, and if, if ticks get up to 95 cents a piece, you can also cash out with really no consequence because you can buy back in on card hoarder with eight cents on the dollar discount. So you can get your cash out, and if you ever want to get back in, you actually can make a profit on that cash out. Interesting. Um, hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your methodology? Like your day-to-day, you're tracking the magic online economy, trying to decide what to buy and what to sell, when to do it. What are the signals that you're looking for? Yeah, so I I'd put it in three major buckets, um, and then I have a number of rules that I follow when making specific 
you know, judgment calls, but overarchingly, um, historical trends is probably the biggest thing. Um, and you really have to know what's been happening in the moto economy to put those trends in context because data from the last year when arena has been around is much different in terms of supply and, and just how the market acted compared to data from a few years ago. Um, so historical trends um, for the meta system uh, economy, and then also met, uh, historical trends for specific cards. So, you know, cards that are well-played tend to, you know, have a trend when they come out, they, they spike hard, they drop for a week, two, three, and then, uh, once supply kind of starts to level off, uh, the ones that are really in demand start to, to go up pretty steadily. Um, others keep falling, and it's a matter of finding the right floor. So looking at those historical trends um, and comparing to the prior set, the set at the same time in the prior year, so like that you know winter set or spring set. Um, so those type of historical trends. And then uh, changes to formats, uh, so whether that's changes, shifts in the meta, uh, or banning restricted announcements, or... Um, things of that nature that can you know make cards better or worse or new sets coming to market that just like in paper right there it's kind of the same where you're looking for opportunities to find that card that's going to spike because it interacts in a certain way with a new card that said in paper you usually have some time Um, again moto just moves so much faster so when you might have had three four or five days in paper to see twitter and see you know analysts and you know star city games talk about things on Moto, it's it's you know real time uh, once the set is out anyway, which comes out usually um, prices or new new sets come out about a week before paper. Um, so I expect the next set to be out mid April on uh, MTGO, um, and then finally ban and restricted announcements obviously are are a big deal. Uh, and lastly, just looking at supply, um, that is the the number one thing with Moto. Um, some cards have an insane number of copies in the market, whereas others, you know, it's, it's just really, really short supply. Um, Core 2020, for example, I think Saffron Olive posted a tweet, like, if you bought one copy of everything in Core 2020, you'd have, you know, like a 500% return or something, something huge, um, just because Core 2020 wasn't drafted, um, just like in paper, but even more so on Moto. Same with um, Modern Horizons, another example of that. Um, and you have to know that supply, and you can only really know it by just digging into the data and reading the market over a long time horizon. And so one of the other things that's been a big deal is that with the advent of Arena and the completely hazy, unclear cutoff and passing of the torch, where Wizards for years now is running these two pieces of software side by side, but with different feature sets, um, is that you know I jumped out of Magic Online four years ago on the premise that they had announced Arena, assuming that within a two to three year horizon they would pass that torch completely but they failed to do so so we're in this weird situation where um the magic online uh, economy has shrunk um in terms of total play at least the play patterns that are related to standard and draft standard drafts because at least a major chunk of that has moved over to arena it seems like some pros have actually uh, launched a counter trend where they want to draft with real people. And so some of that has, for real testing purposes, people have shifted back to Magic Online, at least until Arena can support that. But the result of all of that is that, uh, as I understand it, is that there are far less standard packs being cracked via drafting on Magic Online than there used to be. And so supply constriction, if people want to need those cards for the formats that are only available on Magic Online. So if there's a fresh standard set like Theros Beyond Death, and there's a card in it like Uro that is needed for 
modern and pioneer, for instance, um, there's just less of the inventory floating around. Yep, I think that's 100% accurate. And the other thing we haven't talked about is redemption, which factors into this. Um, so in Magic Online, uh, for a period of time, which is usually a couple weeks or a month after the set releases to, you know, it used to be longer, it used to be a year more. Um, now I think it's three to six months after release. Um, you can actually trade in a full set of digital cards for paper cards for like a $25 fee plus shipping and processing. What that means is that, that for a period of time, the online cards are linked in price um, in a very real way to paper cards. Uh, and that uh, towards the end of those redemption windows, that really drives up the price of, of online cards, uh, generally speaking, because people need certain cards. They have to get them to complete their set to cash out. Uh, vendors do this as well. It's it's a lot of, I think, cards that get moved out. So, you know, a lot of things that, you know, okay, you think, oh, everyone's drafting. So a lot of cards are coming into the, the pool. And that's true. But a lot of those cards are getting pumped out of the system into real paper cards. Uh, and then when those redemption periods end, you see usually a pretty big drop on some of these cards, um, particularly foils that, you know, really didn't didn't warrant the prices. Uh, and without the paper uh, export, they just crash. Yeah, po- foils are fascinating on Magic Online because they're not the treatment of them, the way that the foil manifests uh, visually in the software is very underwhelming. It doesn't at all <laughs> hold mm-hmm. hold the same cachet as it does in paper. But as you said, yep. because redemption allow if you get a foil set, you can turn it into a real foil set, which is worth way more long-term offline than it would be online. Um, you have seen cards, uh, f- specific foil mythics, I, if I recall correctly when I was targeting those, um, would spike really hard going into those redemption periods, even if those cards weren't good. And there tended to be yeah. some, uh, some random bottleneck that you had to try to flag early on. Um you know, it would be a mythic that nobody actually needed for anything, but just seemed to be under-opened for whatever mm-hmm. reason. And it would end up being, you know, a 18 or $24 foil mythic that was worth $3 in paper. Yeah, and one of the interesting side effects of the increased drop rate of foils in paper market is we I've seen less of this happening now because the paper non-extended art you know all just the basic pack foil are so devalued now that it doesn't warrant that premium for redemption so on online the the foils are generally pretty comparable to the non-foils um even during the redemption window right at least from what i've seen and then the other the other long-term trend of course was that uh starting a few years back they've really shortened the redemption window it used to be that you had Mm -hmm. quite a long period of time if i recall correctly there was a it started with, I think you had a year or something. Yeah, um, it sounds about right. Um, to to redeem it, and now it's what three months. Yep. Right. Yeah, and I, they've extended it a few times, but yeah. I sure. remember when that changed. It was it was it was about a year um, or close to it, and you you know you would kind of keep track of what that redemption timing looked like, and be like, okay, well, you know, the inventory is going to keep growing in two months, and then redemption is going to cut off in you know this coming october which means that by december we could see some real increases on the standard cards because there's no more redemption copies coming in um but i remember when they chopped the time frame on that down and then jumped the shipping from five to 25 and people just about lost their minds yeah because one of the things that paper vendors would do is Mm -hmm. buy up sets from goat bots or whatever because it gave them full play sets so it's it, it was a predictable way to crack product 
that you could attach math to very easily. You could say, well, okay, they want 77 tickets for a set. If we sell the top six cards from the set, we're going to get the equivalent of 118 US. So that's our margin. And then all the extra stuff just goes into our binders and adds margin over time. And it was it was a favorite. It was a favorite of many LGS owners to be able to go to that. But with the shortened redemption windows, um, the play is uh, the duration uh, of the play is significantly reduced. Yeah. So I, for example, Brazen Borrower is one that we targeted um, after the redemption period. It dropped from online fifty one ticks uh, all the way down to. 31 uh, within let's see february 9th to february 23rd and this was the first time the redemption window closed for eldrain and then they reopened it and now it's reclosing again soon so a little complicated but bottom line it dropped from 51 to to 31 uh, which you know it was at, that's a massive drop and so that was an opportunity point where you you know you could be looking at that going oh well it's dropping i'm not buying in we did the opposite as soon as it started to go back up again um Myself and several people on the Discord bought in at like 34, 36 when we saw that trend reversing, and it went right back up to 48 because the demand is very real. Um, and so it's kind of one of those things where if you notice the trend, you realize why it was going down because you know the redemption uh, pressures and fear and things like that. And then as soon as you can see the reverse of the trend, you know it's time to act and jump in. So all of that took place within you know a month, um, and really the buying and selling took place within a week and you were able to make a, you know about a 25% profit uh, on on you know I bought for example 20 copies so I made a couple hundred dollars and the, uh, and though 25% the, annualized doesn't sound like a whole lot it would be a very solid return but it's not jaw dropping 25% in a week is many thousands of percentage return per per annum so if you can if you can repeat that even two thirds of the time weekly throughout the year on your play, you can take you know your stack of three hundred tickets or whatever and turn it into six hundred, nine hundred, twelve hundred ticks. Yeah. So right now, I'm I'm managing a portfolio of I, I have probably two thousand ticks worth of personal cards plus three thousand investment, um, which is up because I grew it. Um, and in this month so far, I'm up about eight hundred ticks. So. 800 ticks on about 3,000. Um, and most of that's coming from really, you know, big movement on, on staples. So uh, movement on uh, Oko, uh, Car in the Great Creek Creator, when the uh, mono green uh, decks became hot. Same with Vivian, uh, Arcbow Ranger, um, Brazen Borrower, uh, Urza. You know, all, I mean, these aren't, you know, big, shocking, surprising things that you have to really dig for. And there, there's plenty of those, but those aren't where I think the significant profits are to be made. A lot of them are things where you look at and you say, hey, this you, you gut check, this isn't right, right? There's a there's some reasons. Um, Heliod, right? Heliod became the, the number one deck for a while in Pioneer. Um, I haven't been following Pioneer that closely for a while, but um, you know, at that time, it was clearly becoming a number one deck, but the price didn't reflect that. Nothing had moved. Kroxa, which at the time hadn't been being played, was worth more um and so it just kind of created clear signals that something was off and so identifying those opportunities really can uh, again produce produce a really good return on investment if you know what you're doing is it also fair to say that the gap between the potential returns on rares and mythics is even is exacerbated on magic online uh so you're saying that can you rephrase that sure Do, do you tend to ignore rares in favor of mythics 
Yeah, so um, you know, one of my rules is avoid middling rares. So if it's a staple, if it's like Murderous Rider or um, the the red one Bone that does the two giant. damage and Bone Crusher yeah, Giant, those style. yeah, Bone Crusher Giant. I mean, those are those are in a different league. Thoughtseize, um, Walking Ballista. I mean, they're proven, they're time tested. They're they they're, they are needed to make their decks succeed. They're four those, ups. They're multi format. Yeah, they're four ups and multi format. Um, it's the ones that are a dollar or eighty cents or you know that come and go here and there. Um, that you know those i avoid like the plague because one day a dollar card can be literally 10 cents uh, you know a week later just because it gets fallen out of favor um girl spellbreaker is one that i you know it, it kind of flags on me that i you know anytime i see it it just bothers me because it was one of those that i did early and i regretted it right away because it went from a dollar to literally 20 cents um <laughs> and i i only noticed it because it came back now uh and now it's back to about a dollar on buy list so i'm i'm breaking even on that one in the end but you know it's one of those things where yeah you really want to focus either on very very expensive uh you know mythics that you think have a lot of growth room not very expensive very prominent mythics that have a lot of growth room or very cheap rares right so you don't have it, it can be something like um shatter of the skies is one that i'm a big advocate of it's a four mana wrath uh, with a downside potentially uh but it tends 10.1 uh tick so basically 10 cents and so it's like okay if you buy yeah 10 for a dollar so if you buy 100 copies and you lose 10 bucks cares right but if it spikes to a dollar or two dollars which these four mana wraths tend to do uh when they're needed and played particularly in the fall uh, you know which is a long-term play but in the fall when um you know everything rotates the 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 number of sets and standards is a lot smaller and aggro usually is a lot bigger you know you make maybe a hundred bucks for very little effort um those type of things i just buy while i'm drafting or uh, or playing a league or something like that so yeah. So I mean, the, and the other those... thing is that the the yaw between the, the very uh, like cards can get to fractions of a penny on Magic Online, whereas for pre- whereas in Paper World, for practical purposes, you know, it's really hard to see a mythic under three bucks, uh, a mythic under a dollar. It's must it's going to be a real trash mythic, um, and you know, for most paper pricing prices are anchored to the cost of like bulk per thousand or whatever. Um, whereas on Magic Online, for instance, just to get throw out a random example, Inverter of Truth was practically zero. Then it was 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2 as the deck emerged. And a couple of weeks later, you could get out near $10 for re- just insane ROI. Yep. Those yep, penny 100%. stocks are so tempting. would be so tempting to me if I was more into Moto. I would be like... Yeah, a rare that seems like it has a potential use case that I'm paying eight cents for or whatever. Like, yeah, I will be all over that, especially like older stuff. Oh, man, I would because you can't chase those. They're so much harder to chase in paper because the overhead cost of moving the cards around is so much higher. Um, but damn, I would love to do that type of stuff on Moto. There at least I should. I, that's what I would be drawn in by. I don't know if I'd make any money on it, but it would certainly be what I'd want to do. Well, like, think about, yeah. like, Storm Herald. Storm Herald was basically nothing. And then they started dropping hints about a big uh, aura that's going to be an Ikoria. And it jumped to, like, 0.2 of, like, 20 cents. Well, that sounds like nothing. But if you picked them up at 0.02 and you got enough of them, then and your buy list exit was 0.12 or 0.14, you're still doing very, very well. Yeah, and the time to enter on these are often um, right when set releases 
uh, they're a little high, but you know, two to three weeks out, for, particularly for rares, um, you know, that's the the usually the bottom. Uh, and then, you know, rather than picking them off four at a time, you can do all, you know, pick your list of all the specs that you think warrant it, and do them do them in bulk all at the same time, right? So I did for Theros Beyond Death, I did the Skylands at a couple cents a piece, except the I think the blue white one. Um, you know, Elsbeth Conqueror's Death, uh, E2 Extinction. Uh, the the black uh, white uh, dog, the lifelink menace, uh, graveyard hate dog, shattered the skies, storm herald, and we, you know where if you're spending the time on each one of these cards, it adds up. But if you're doing them all together, it still adds up. But it, it's a lot less burdensome, and you're doing it all at peak supply, um, and so the cards are always there. There's a lot of them, so the price doesn't move very much when you buy. So you can buy. Um, I usually buy in bulk uh, of 20 copies per card, and then. You know, do 20 here and there. You do that five times, you have 100 copies. And, you know, if one of those spikes to a dollar or two, which is probably pretty likely, uh, you'll pay for everything you did and everything beyond that's profit. Right. And I remember using that strategy quite a bit because that is the counter pressure that, yeah, it's tempting to to go, oh, like 0.02 to 0.2 is a 10 times return. But if you only bought four copies, you're talking about going from 8 cents to 80 cents. And it's like, who cares? Um, yeah. Because your time per hour might, you know, outside of the plague times um is going to be worth something between ten dollars and a hundred dollars an hour so you got to keep that in mind but as you said if you can identify four eight twelve different specs that you think are constitute a basket that exists that is subject to similar conditions or unrelated specs that you just are convinced are good and you're going to spend 30, 30 to 45 seconds interacting with each bot, but you're going to spend 30 or you're going to deploy 30, 40, 50 ticks at a time. Now you've got a cost effective method of action. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just look at, you know, I think you highlighted one, but, you know, Jace Wheeler of Mysteries. To anyone that's, you know, played Magic, you know, people like doing these sorts of effects. And clearly that had potential. At one point, it was seven cents on GoBots. Now it is six, uh, $12. I mean, it's it, all you got to do is hit, you know, one of those. I mean, obviously, you'd probably be out before then anyway. But the point is, you know, there, there's opportunities to be made. And yeah, it's all about efficiency uh, and making sure, you know, you're you're spending your time worthwhile. But again, you know, I think on Moto, you can do a lot of this when you're, you know, watching Netflix. And it's kind of like sorting bulk, right? Same type of thing where it takes time, but it doesn't take a lot of mental energy. So you can kind of do other things while you do it. That is a good example, because in paper, the regular war copies of Jace Wilder Mysteries went from like two to five bucks, um, which is decent from a buy list perspective if you can get out at like three seventy five or whatever like, what, like I did. But as you said, points, point four, point five, point six, and then spiking up to 16, 17 tickets a couple of different times. To be clear, make it even more dramatic, point oh seven. Sure. Seven cents. <laughs> yeah, completely <laughs> ridiculous, which is just pure yep. profit with an insane percentage beside it. Yep. Yep. Now, if you had bought 3,000 copies, you'd be doing pretty well right now. I mean, I, I think that the Magic Online play, <laughs> because of the aforementioned scalability issues, shouldn't be looked at something where you're going to get rich. It's not about becoming yeah. a billionaire. That's not going to happen inside this economy. E- even the guys running the bots that get an automatic margin back and forth have just been running nice, like, cash cow small businesses for the most part. Yeah. Um, it seems like the bread and butter of moto investing is a lot of like 15 to 30% wins is but what this what it sounds but, like to me. But compounding over the course of the year and with an assumption that you're going to have a certain fail rate. A really good fail rate might be one third of the time 
and a more realistic one might be that you get it right 55% of the time or something. And that's going to scale your, your win rate's going to scale with your knowledge of formats and your, your, uh, t- your frequency of interaction with the platform. Um, so th- there are certainly, you know, we're touching a lot of the unique points that need to be considered. Certainly, I, I think it's actually a lot easier to apply uh, your magic online action and then turn around and compound the returns of that research into paper than it is to do the reverse. Because by the time you've made a move in paper, the move has probably already happened on Magic Online. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, people look to Magic Online to get indications of what they should be looking at in paper. And you can't always, I mean, look at them. You look at Karn the Great Creator. It's up to 40 ticks again. It used to be even more. And in paper, it's five, six bucks. Um, and, you know, it's just a different supply dynamic and things like that. But you can see the indications of looking at the price movements of, you know, what, what is changing, right? And then you have to figure out, okay, does that apply to the paper market? But it definitely doesn't work the other way around. And, and so outside of the plague times, um, there, are, there are often times where you can, you know, take the action, you know, the 40 tickets you just deployed on Magic Online and turn around and buy the same thing in Europe. You know, if, you're, if you were one of the first to buy Inverter of Truth, uh, on Magic Online, and you were, you know, watching how many five lists were popping up in a short period of time. You might have been in early enough to get, you know, foil copies at three bucks or four bucks or whatever, and flip them for twenty bucks later. Um, however, there is there is a intervening factor that is not typically not present in paper that is present on online that we haven't mentioned yet, and that's the presence of flashback drafts. Oh yeah, can you talk to me a little bit about those? Yep. Yeah, so uh, for those that aren't familiar, flashback draft is when they bring back an old set or a chaos draft or anything like that. So taking old cards and doing a draft format with them. Um, and historically, a flashback draft have been to keep the cards. Um, so they bring them back and you know they do Zendikar and these other big sets that have a big draw. Uh, and people are willing to actually pay you know normal $10, $12 to draft because they get to keep the cards. Um, recently, this year, it's been a change where they... Uh, have made it a phantom draft so you get to have the fun of drafting and a little less entry fee but you don't get to keep the cards um that's a big change because when you do a flashback draft you know a lot of people want to play these old formats and so it inserts a whole whole new supply into the to the system um today um just this morning they announced that they're going to do a flashback draft for modern horizons uh which is on moto is a is a very very short supply set and so you see you know rares like uh, I mean, you see the mythics through the roof. Red and six is over a hundred tickets. I think it hit 140 before bands and 120 just before this was announced. Uh, Force of negations, 90 tickets and um, has dropped 30% of that today. Um, since this was announced. Um, so this flashback draft will dramatically increase the supply of these cards. And so as a result, um, just to put in perspective, I sold my force of negations as soon as I saw this announcement. Um, thanks for James posting it in the discord. I yeah. actually, he saw it first. I sold my force negations for 76 tickets, uh, which was very good price. I got rid of all of my modern horizon cards and went back. And this was like probably 40 minutes later, went back to short force negations, which we'll talk about, I'm sure in a bit. Uh, short meaning selling them and then buying them back later. So trying to profit on the decline in the market. Uh, and by the time I had went back, it dropped from 76 ticks to 59 ticks. Um, so that was within an hour. Um, so that's how fast this market moves. But yeah, so these flashback drafts will uh, increase supply uh, and they're happening 
uh, starting April 1st for Modern Horizons. Uh, so that will create a downward pressure. So if you have those cards, um, you probably miss the prime market for selling them. But, uh, you know, it's just going to get worse, I would imagine, until these drafts are done. But then once they're done, you know, we'll have a new bottom of the market and it'll create a new opportunity to to buy in. Yeah. And so the, go ahead. This the severity of price changes and the speed is daunting to hear you talk about this card going from 75 to 50 in the span of 45 minutes. It's like, so if you're caught in a meeting at work, you just get savaged. If you're a nine to fiver who's disciplined and basically keeps those worlds separate, this kind of system is like your action on magic online is going to be less attractive. If you or somebody like me that works from home and can keep your magic online stuff on your like third monitor or whatever throughout the day, um, then you're going to be in a much better position. You, it's the kind of thing you definitely need to keep on on top of, depending on your strategy. If you're, you know, working the treasure chest angle or whatever, then it's less moment to moment because those are more midterm trends, right? Yeah. And most of the tournaments happen on the weekend. So tournaments drive a lot of these price changes, and those are all happening um, Saturday and Sunday. And they're released on Monday or Monday or Tuesday by um, by Wizards. But generally, the price movements are happening before they get posted, unless it's like a really new deck. Um, so I, I, I mean, my job is, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lobbyist in my professional career, uh, and my job can be very intense. And so during the week, I check out more than I probably should. Um, there's There's been examples where I've lost money because of it, but I find outside of ban and restricted announcements that come out at the worst possible time on a mon- you know, Monday at 11 o'clock or whatever it is. Um, short of that, it, it doesn't interfere too much uh, unless you know those, those big change happen, but usually they're not midweek. We, mid-week. Gotcha. So spe- speaking of treasure chests, that's the other point of resupply in this market that is unique to digital, uh, well, unique to Magic Online specifically that doesn't really exist in the paper sphere. Can you talk to us about treasure chests a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think just the fact that we keep missing very big items of the economy shows how complicated it is, because, and there is, so you have, uh, I mean, these treasure chests are a massive change to the economy. They happened, I think, in 2016, so it's been a number of years now, and I think they've kind of got their rhythm. Um, So treasure chests are basically a a mixture of cards that Wizards decided needs to be um, inserted into the economy. Uh, and they're the prize that you get if you win events. Um, so there's a few things that you can get. You can get play points, which get you into other events. They're kind of like tickets, but they're only used to get into events. You can't um, use them on bots to to buy and sell cards. Uh, and then there's treasure chests, which are you know a coalition of, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of cards. Um, they're all posted online. Uh, and the rarities, you know, there, you can have a drop ranging from a full foil set of Theros Beyond Death, for example, to the, you know, one cent or not even a cent common that, you know, you don't even want. Um, so it's a huge range, but generally speaking, the chests uh, are valued at around 2.3 tickets worth of value right now, um, and they sell for about two tickets worth of value, or for two tickets. Um, and the spread there is the reason that they're valued um, EV is more than they are uh, worth in tickets is that what you get in them, half of the, the money in these treasure chests are, are these play points. So half of the money in there, the vendors can't use because they're not playing the game. They're only buying and selling. And so there is an inherent kind of tug of 
the only people that should be opening these are people that want to use the contents to play, which isn't the vendors. So um, generally speaking, the, the price of treasure chests go up when a new set uh, releases, um, not because of the set, but because Wizards inserts new cards into the treasure chest that are worth more money um, than, than what's in there currently to boost the value. Uh, and so at, right at the set launch, they, they boost the value. The value usually goes up. And then over time, throughout the next three months, the value kind of goes down because more and more of these cards are entering the system, devaluing them. Uh, and then some of the cards, the, you know, three months later, get pulled out. New ones get put in. The price goes back up, and they just kind of go through that cycle. And obviously, that you know, there's sometimes there are higher swings, sometimes there's lower swings. It all depends on what wizards inserts in the treasure chest. Um, but these are the only mechanism, for example, for commander cards to get inserted into the MTGO economy. Because, uh, which because is, they don't sell the mad, the commander decks online. Yeah, right. So which what that means is. Again, talking about knowing your market, um, you know, the number of commander cards in the economy really ranges. So some of these cards were put in for a while and taken out and never really had a resupply. And so they're off the charts expensive and others are really, really well used, but they're really cheap just because they've been in these treasure chests for a long time and their drop rates, uh, meaning the, the odds of you getting them are a lot higher. So and, just and, again, goes back to the research. And Wizards doesn't publish you know, the date range that a card has been present or how its drop, drop rate has fluctuated over time. So that that's the kind of internal knowledge to this, uh, this part of the market that you just have to make your own notations on and leverage to whatever degree you've been exposed to it along the way. Yep, I agree with that. Yeah, so th- that can be very tricky. For instance, like before the announcement today about the Modern Horizons flashback, I had already been talking to a few different people on Twitter uh, via DM about how something like that was inevitable because the Modern Horizons drop rates and treasure chests were way too low and there was too few cards involved. And it just felt like... Yeah, there was there was only three cards in the treasure chest from Modern Horizons. Um, and again, I only know this because of research. Um, so it was Urza, Prismatic Vista, and Plague Engineer. And that was it. Um, and Ren and Six used to be in them, but they pulled them out. And I think one of them was a higher drop rate, and they, they scaled it back. So I actually thought that they would do um, a more in the treasure chests rather than doing a flashback draft. Flashback draft are kind of like, we're going to get everything right away, get this money in the door. Maybe that's what they wanted because they need the profits right now with everything happening with um, COVID. But the whereas if you do it through a treasure chest it's kind of a slow bleed right it just incentivizes people to play more generally and that the cards still get into the system but over a larger time horizon and what that does is you know people don't get mad if their force negations go from 90 ticks to 45 ticks over four months and they say oh i should have noticed this i should have gotten out they make excuses but when they go from 90 to 60 in one day I think it. I think it irks them with wizards, and it irks them with the system, and it just makes them, you know, less likely to buy those really expensive cards. Um, so I'm, I'm actually a little surprised they went this route, and I think it's probably because they need profits in the short term. Yeah, they've also got all these people at home, and they want to harness the the one part of the economy yeah. so for the same reason. We're, right. We we are flagging Magic Online. It makes perfect sense that wizards is turning their attention to the economic engine that is most likely to generate money. One of the things that's interesting is that in a situation where people don't have a lot of disposable income for as long as the COVID situation drags on, the economic model of Magic Arena gets worse and worse and Magic Online gets better and better because Magic Online rewards uh, 
uh, longevity of participation because you build up a collection that has a cash value. Whereas on Magic Arena, you're motivated to grind uh, for free the worse your cash situation gets. So that model is already inherently uh, a lower average revenue per revenue and profit per user. You need higher scale in the arena economy than you do in Magic Online to make solid profit. So I'm not at all surprised to see them doubling down on some of the techniques that they've built up over the years for Magic Online to drive traffic and, and make money. Yeah, I think the fiscal reports say arena is still not profitable, right? right. Whereas Magic Online obviously is. Yeah, because it's a, it's a new piece of software with a, a larger team. And because of the freemium model, you a lar- much larger percentage of the people you're supporting to play the game and the, the architecture you have to have in place to support those people is not getting any, is not being covered by any amount of revenue. Um, whereas Magic Online is basically nearly impossible to, to participate without putting some kind of money in the system. Hmm. I'm a little surprised Arena hasn't turned a profit yet. They have But I suppose that could be due to my unfamiliarity with the larger model of software deployment. Yeah. The um so I guess the the final uh, topic we wanted to touch on is your experience with not pioneering so much as being one of a relatively limited number of people that are shorting magic cards within the magic online economy a subject matter that i haven't participated in yet but i've been following along with closely because i find the whole concept of being able to short collectibles fairly fascinating can you lead us through some of that yeah so you know just like i think any other shorting um which i at least i imagine shorting is a a very nerve-wracking thing um because (laughs) so when when you short anything a stock or here a magic card it is an unlimited potential risk. Um, and so when you're doing this, so you are essentially borrowing from here uh, a vendor, uh, but in the stock market, your brokerage or whatever, and you're borrowing it and then ultimately buying it later and giving it back to the vendor. And the goal is when you buy it later, it'll be worth less, which means you make that spread. Um, and usually there's some fees attached to that um, for the luxury of having the opportunity. Here, it's paying uh, the, the, the vendors to have a rental account. Um, specifically, um, well, I don't, do we want to talk about specific vendors on here? No, they, they wouldn't appreciate it, yeah. so we'll just say Yeah, I would imagine there, not. There so are, we'll just say... There are some well, vendors yeah. that rent, rent magic cards, and yes. they're all equally exposed to this technique. Yeah, so, and... and in the end, um, you know, if you borrow a card at uh, $20 and it, all of a sudden, you know, it goes crazy. I mean, you look at some of these like Karn, great, the great creator. I mean, I sold mine at 30 and I was like very happy and it just kept going, right? It kept going to 40 or 50. Same with Vivian. Um, and there's a number of these examples. I bought um, one. I bought Yuriko, which is one I, you know, I think can actually make a profit again here. But I bought Yuriko. Um, and I bought it at 35 and it went up to 60 and I was just floored. I just, I, you know, but it's one of those things where when you're shorting, you really have to have confidence in what you're doing because what you're trying to do is time it. And you, you, your, your idea is that the fundamentals of the growth are, are not valid, right? That people are getting FOMO, that they're buying in to either the new hot deck or they're buying into something of just really short supply, um, and not recognizing that the, the value isn't there. 
and you're trying to be the, the, the voice of reason, essentially. Um, so I've shorted probably, I mean, look at my list, I don't know, a couple dozen cards, um, a, a little over a dozen cards over the last um, three or four months um, making. Uh, so I do uh, about a 500 tick allocation for shorts, um, and I've made a profit of about 400 ticks over three months so almost and that's including paying for fees so almost doubling my my money but again i mean it's not it's not super scalable um just because uh, at least my account is is relatively small with the vendors but it's fun first off um you know you you look at something in the market and you say i think i i know better than others right and buy and hold is is very similar in that regard but it's just a little different You're, you're saying look at these, the fundamentals are wrong and I'm, I'm betting against the market. And when, I mean, how often in life do you get to bet against the market and actually win? Uh, and this is one where, you know, if you look at these cards that spike from, you know, whatever, a dollar, $2 to $30 overnight, you know, not overnight, but over a course of a week or two or some mythics. I mean, Chandra, the, the awakened Inferno at one point when I shorted it, it was $50 for a card. That's a one of, in a few decks here and there, maybe in a sideboard, a sideboard card shouldn't be fifty dollars, and the the people that were paying that, I, I feel I feel sorry for them. But you know, I, I essentially profit off that by um, you know holding it for you know a couple weeks until people gain their senses, sell their copies back for a variety of reasons, and and make the spread. Yeah, so let's just backtrack a little bit to fill in some blanks for people that might not be familiar with the details of of a short. Basically, what you're doing is you're buying a contract to in the stock market to be able to sell uh, a card at today's price and the way that you're planning on fulfilling it is by watching that that asset drop to some low level then buying it at the market price in the future and then cashing in your contract and if the contract was if the card was say at a hundred dollars the stock was at a hundred dollars it drops to 50 and your contract was four was five bucks then you're going to pocket 45 per contract um, now, in the Magic Online economy, you are renting cards from a vendor and selling them right away, guessing that you're at or pretty close to the, a peak, which is about to reverse course. So you rent some some an eighty dollar eighty tip card, and you're you're guessing that within a certain period of time it's going to drop down to some lower number, at which point you will. Uh, you will buy it and return it. And the reason that you can do that is because uh, card assets in Magic Online do not have a unique digital signature. If they introduced that, the entire thing would be wrecked because you'd be handing in the, a card that was different than the one that you actually took possession of. But they don't, they don't track that on Magic Online. So you can sell one, the card you rented and return a different one later. And as long as it's the same card from the same set, you're good. Yep. And obviously one area of, you know, pretty much definitive profit, if you can do it fast enough, is if a card gets banned, you know, clearly the price is going to go down. And that's one where the the dollars are there, but that's something I initially thought about doing, but I don't do um, in, in respect to the vendors, because I do think that's, that's a little much, um, even though I, I would argue that, you know, they're going to probably take in those, it's going to affect them in a pretty similar way regardless, but that's something I have steered clear of, but um, generally speaking, yeah, I'm looking for overvalued things that are um, overvalued either because they're they're played in a way that 
they probably won't be played in the future, right? So they're, the play pattern, the meta is shifting, which makes them less relevant. Um, so like a burn card, which is great week one, obviously isn't going to probably carry through going forward. Um, but then also, you know, supply issues. So like these Modern Horizon cards are some that I was able to short. Um, and, you know, just looking at the numbers now, I already turned a profit on um, just today because clearly the supply is going to be bigger than it is now. Um, so it's not a ban announcement, but it has a very similar effect. Sure. Can you can you talk to us about the timelines? Because in the stock market, usually buying a three month, a six month, a nine month option, and it's often harder. It gets more and more expensive the more time you want for that option to be uh, actionable. Um, because as the timeline grows, there's more and more variance in the marketplace. More and more thing factors could affect the stock in question, either at a micro or a macroeconomic level, and and so the fees and the options go up, but that's not true when you're renting the card. So what are the limitations time-wise? Yeah. So you're, I mean, vendors say that you should turn in cards as soon as you can, but I've never seen any enforcement on that. Um, and if they do, again, that would change just how this market functions. Um, that said, so, you know, I think every day, every tick, let's see, I'm trying to think how to frame it. So it's $15 in real life dollars for a 500 tick allocation per week so what that so breaks down to yeah so 60 a month um so for example i um there was one card that you know i thought had potential um i shorted it on let's see on march 1st and got out on the 22nd so about three weeks um and that short for you know a, a whatever a 30 rare cost me 12 12 bucks so over the four copies 12 bucks you know, you're talking over the three weeks. I mean, you got to basically have the price go down by, you know, three dollars a copy just to break even. So if you're buying into a, you know, thirty dollar card, you need to get it to twenty seven just to basically break even. So that's the kind of spread you're looking at. And usually it's a two to three week time horizon on these because any longer than that, like you said, other factors come into play and you just don't know what's what's going to happen. Um, and usually, in, you know, you're trying to time it right. Um, you're trying to find the top of the market um, and, and hit it before it curves because unlike, so the, the big thing on a short also is the spread. So the spread is the difference between buying and selling. And when a card's going up in price, the spread is very, very low. Um, so you can see it on Magic Online between, especially if you compare vendors and shop between vendors, you can find it as low as you know a couple percent um, for a Mythic or you know something of of high high rarity. Usually five percent at the most, um, sometimes ten, but not usually. Uh, so if you can get that great spread, your what you have to gain on the drop is pretty low. If the spread is 20% because the card has already started dropping, no one wants it, everyone's selling it, then it gets come re- becomes really hard to make a profit because that spread is eating a lot of it. And so you're trying to find it on the way up rather than on the way down. Because if you've got a 20% uh, margin at the bot and you're effectively at 10% on your 500 tickets per month and the whole thing takes a month to execute, then you could you need to be dropped by 30% or more to even get above water. Yep. So, and there's, um, you know, one of the bot uh, bots that um, folks might not know, but especially for these, you know, if you're looking at a high dollar card or, or things like that, especially in demand card, uh, MTGO Traders has a hot buy list. Um, so they have their normal buy list, but they also have a hot buy list. And usually they're only looking for about four copies of card. 
But if you're selling something like a Force Negation or you know these really expensive cards, you can usually get an extra dollar, two dollars um, per card. So if you add that up on four copies, uh, you know, if if you, if they have it offered, and it's usually I mean maybe like a 25% hit, but you know you get an extra two 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 to two a card, eight eight over the four copies. That adds up um, just to make sure your margins are padded. And, you know, all it takes is a second of checking their website uh, to, to see if that's listed. And just to re- drive home the, re- the risk profile here, because I think we skipped past it a little bit. The reason we talk about it as unlimited risk is because, in theory, the price of the card could never drop. It could go completely the opposite direction. It could continue to rise and, and rise forever. And you would need to buy the card at that price. So you could return it to the vendor <laughs> as part of your right. rental agreement. So you're paying uh, 15 bucks. Uh, sorry, you said $60 a month for 500 ticks worth of stuff. If you buy a 100 ticks card and it goes to 1,000 ticks, which would never happen, but just ostensibly, you could be underwater by 10 times your, your original cost. Yeah. And and this all gets back to risk versus return, right? Both on long-term buy and hold versus and shorting. You know, you have to look and think, okay, what's the downside, right? What could happen? And if you're talking about like you mentioned earlier, a treasure chest, which is a very stable, it's kind of like a commodity, right? Those the risk is very low, but the return is also very low, relatively speaking. You're going to get you know, if I mean right now I'm holding a large number of treasure chests because I think they're going to bump up um, come the new set release and if they do i'll make maybe 10 percent or 15 percent on a good day uh you know that's fine but that's nothing compared to 25 percent in a week right um or more um some of these we've done a double up in you know just a matter of days um so but it's all a risk reward calculation and on shorts the risk is a lot higher for the cheaper a card is right so if a card's 20 to 30 dollars or 50 dollars that means the growth is probably not going to continue to a huge extent. Whereas if you're buying into a $10 card, the likelihood of it getting to $20, $30, $40 is, is probably pretty high. Well, one, one of the things that I think is interesting in this market is that there isn't really any friction preventing a stock from going to the moon because that company might be in a growth phase. They might be Shopify in, in year one, and they're going to go... 20 times or 30 times or whatever by the time they're done. And so the risk on your short is very high. But on the ma- with Magic cards, one thing I've noticed is that the, the intensity of the gravitational pull that slows the expansion of the card's price does tend to kick in along uh, the lines of the standard retail theory of pricing. So, you know, it's, it's a lot easier for a $2 card to go to $10 than it is for a $10 card to go to 20 way easier for 10 to 20 than it is for 20 to 40 and so on and so forth and so if you're targeting a card that's at say 35 tickets like Eurico and you're betting that it's going to go to 50 or 60 that's one thing you could bet against it that you think it's going to drop down to 20 but you're probably limited to a two times loss right it would be really hard for a 35 dollar Eurico to go to 140 yeah yeah I agree with that yeah so that certainly helps but you also don't have access to the protections you would have in the normal options market to uh, cover the other side of your trade. So like one of the tricks that you can use in the options market is you can buy um, you can buy the ability to uh, basically cover your the other side, limit your losses 
through a variety of different mechanisms. We could probably speak for an hour on just the different ways you could do it, but you can basically set up a counter contract that bets against um, the options that you've purchased, which will limit your upside, but also severely limit your downside. And you have no way of activating a a counter contract like that inside Mm -hmm. this situation. Yeah, and the other thing um, with shorts is that you can't... So what I do is I track all of my cards um, automatically through a card hoarder's card keeper tool. So rather than checking every day individually per card, I can just go onto that tool. I can export... um, you can kind of right-click on your your binder and export it, and then import it into Card Hoarder, and look at the card binder and see what the value of your count is and what the buy list is for any card in your portfolio. Uh, and so what that does is it makes it easy. So I just set uh, the Card Hoarder uh, Card Keeper to 0.5 ticks. So anything half a dollar basically or more is what I see, and anything below that it's not even on my radar. And so, because I don't really buy things that are, you know, 20, 30, 40 cents, I buy 10 cent things or expensive things. Um, And so when something grows and reaches that threshold, then I see it and it's on my radar, but I'm able to kind of like take that stuff and keep it out of my brain until it warrants the attention. Um, But also I don't have to actually manually look at it for a short, I mean, you can add it into your, your pro uh, into your um, portfolio too, just to see it. But um that's one i think i've I've had you have to kind of like really look at um goat bots is one that um, specifically always has things on their buy list and they're as a result their prices are much more reactionary to the market so right now in modern horizon cards for example card hoarder um doesn't have a buy list for almost any of the cards because they react much slower. Their algorithms kind of take time to gradually go down in price, whereas Goatbox is very reactionary. They drop their prices hard as soon as somebody sells them cards and just keeps dropping them and keeps dropping them. And so you can really see what the the value of a card is worth on, on Goatbots in real time, whereas cardholder, card holder, I mean, a card could get banned and they won't drop the price for days or even weeks in any significant amount just because they kind of want to wait out the market and that's how their algorithms work. So interesting. So is it fair to say you also you tracking all of your purchases, your basically the results, uh, your, all your action and tracking profit in the spreadsheet? Yeah. So I track everything. Um, I anything that's under you know is kind of a modest amount, um, ten ten cent purchases and things uh, cards. Uh, those I just track in bulk. So I'll put you know I'll buy. 30 ticks worth of cards in one one sitting and then just put it in as like a negative 30 and kind of write it off as a loss sure. and then if if something comes back to profit later i i count that as a gain but profit. then the, the anything over you know a tick or so um i track individually buy sell um month by month and that way i can kind of see where i'm winning where i'm losing um and that's really where you know this kind of avoid middling rares theories come into place because you look at my losses and they're almost exclusively those middling rares um sometimes other things burn you but it's pretty rare i I remember getting burned pretty hard on uh going in on power nine from vintage masters which was a mggo Mm -hmm. exclusive where lotuses got up to like 300 ticks or whatever and later dropped down to 60 ticks yep that was, that was so now they have the alpha version of those, um, the black bordered, mm-hmm. and they they were up to 300 ticks for the black bordered Lotus, and then they, they did one of these flashback drafts, increased the supply, and they dropped down to, I think, 170 ticks. Right. So 
Travis, all of that must, does that seem overwhelming? Like how much of that does, did you parse and feel solid on? Well, uh, I mean, I understood all of it. I think for the most part, there are bits and pieces there that are, that are new to me. Um, Do you find yourself at all tempted to jump in on this market given the current paper conditions? Well, yeah, uh, I do. I will tell you right off the bat, I am resistant if only because that interface is so bad that it is, I would rather be engaged in bloodletting than try to navigate <laughs> that thing. Um, I, mean, I mean, fortunately, I would argue that most of that experience is linked to playing on Magic Online as opposed to trading. I don't actually find the trading to be all that, as archaic as it is, it's at least simple. My concern is that given the uh, liquidity, the, or should I rather let me phrase that, the l- lack of friction in the market there seems like it may be tempting for, overly tempting for people who want, who sometimes get ahead of themselves. And I could see myself being like, yeah, I'll give this a shot and suddenly have a thousand dollars in there and be like this looks good this looks good i'm gonna short this and just kind of get ahead of myself because it's just so easy to buy and sell uh but i mean all of the the components are the same right none of this is fundamentally different than what i've been doing for i don't know a decade now um it's it's more the what what really i think scares me as someone coming from paper is the the changes in card availability i understand the market ebb and flow in paper uh you know i know when the sets release i know how cards are added to the supply outside of set releases i know when the major product releases are um and that you know you know i know all the avenues by which cards can enter and quote unquote leave the market whereas moto it's very different um you know you have your flashback drafts that can come um, basically at any time. There's definitely a sense of when that would happen. Fred here probably has uh, an intuition for like, will they flash this back or won't they flash this back and when might they do it? And just those types of little things you kind of develop uh, a feeling for that someone who isn't used to Moto won't know. Um, I won't have a sense of whether or not they might flash back modern horizons and if they do is it going to be phantom or not so those are the places i think it's probably you're most likely to get caught with your pants down yeah and so i think the the same principles we always uh advance to our listeners on the paper side apply here as well as you're entering a new any new market your first step is just pure research go ahead start making your picks start tracking your picks but don't put any actual actual money down just track a virtual collection for a while do your research, read articles, get into our Discord, hang out in that channel. Um, go read old articles by Sylvain over on QS. He was probably the most consistent uh, output of magic fi- online finance knowledge over the course of about three to five years. Um, I don't think he's writing for them anymore because he, he got busy with work or whatever, but um, that article backlog is pretty good. We've got some some decent Magic Online stuff uh, in our archive as well. So research is is where you want to be. Like, go ahead, 
buy the deck you want to play on Magic Online. And if your goal here is that you just want to make playing on Magic Online free, which is a modest and reasonable goal to start with, then you start doing the research necessary so that as you're tracking developments in a metagame, you're making a few plays here and there. You know, maybe you're working the treasure chest angle or whatever, some of the low-hanging fruit with relatively low yield. And you can build up your position and your activity over time as circumstances allow. I mean, if we're all stuck at home for another four weeks and that's that, then maybe you don't need to go very deep with it. If we're going to be stuck at home for six months, Magic Online is probably going to see a tremendous period of expansion. Because <laughs> people are going to need are going to need stuff to do with their time. Yeah, I don't doubt that there's opportunity there. Um, it is just a little... Uh, I, I yeah, I have trepidation about putting money into that market without feeling like I know better about it, even though I'm familiar with the you know the, the fundamentals and sure. and all of that. All right. So the, the 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 speed at which you have to react is also pretty wild. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a little lax with <laughs> with a lot of the things I am involved in in terms of like I don't feel like dealing with this now. I'll do it later. But like, as you know, indicated here, there's no room for that. If I'm in the middle of making dinner and I see a tweet that Modern Horizons is getting a flashback draft, like I have to take the food off the stove and walk over to my computer and deal with this because like the time waiting for the water to boil could cost me a hundred dollars. I have definitely, yeah, I have delayed going to dinner to deal with like a portfolio of ticks in, in my past. I don't miss it. The, um, all right, so that was that was a good overview uh, with Fred, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna pull another all time first here. We're gonna turn our entire cards to watch segment over to our boy Fred, and he's gonna make three picks. Um, Magic online specs only this week with no input from us. So the floor is yours, sir. Go for it. All right, let me pull up my list here. So. Right now, I mean, let me give some overarching context. So right now, in a, we're in a weird place where the Modern Horizon movement is happening, which we've talked about, and we'll, we'll really shake things up and create opportunities in a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, waiting for the new set to come out, uh, that usually when a new set comes out, people need tickets to draft to buy the new cards, which means prices become depressed generally across the board by 5, 10, 15 percent. Uh, leading into that new set so you kind of have to be careful at this this juncture but um, looking through i did identify a few so first and foremost is treasure chests Uh, so treasure chests traditionally are between uh 2.2 2.3 tickets um right now that like i said the ev the expected value is about 2.43 tickets uh via goatbot who does this calculation uh for the community which is a great service uh, from them uh, right now, the, the the price of treasure chests are uh, right around two tickets. Um, so there is a chance for about a 15% gain with very little risk. Um, and so if anyone's looking for that buy and hold, they don't want to be running to the computer while making dinner. Uh, that is something that I think is probably the, the prime opportunity. Um, and you, I would specifically uh, look at buying from GoatBots um, because they're uh, both usually the lowest price. But you can also buy in bulk. So we talked about um, buying four copies of a card at a time, something like that. Here with treasure chests, you can buy 200 at a time, all for the same price, because these are high volume commodities. Um, so you can actually buy 200 all for the same price, um, which right now I'm going to actually look up the price is 
uh, 2.02 ticks. Um, so for 400 bucks, you can get 200 ticket, uh, 200 chests, wait on it till mid-April, and hopefully sell those for 2.2, 2.3, and make a decent profit. So that's kind of the long-term buy and hold. Uh, the other two, again, because it's it's a it's a weird time. I think these are a little bit more um, risky than what uh, I normally get into. But I will say I have. Uh, copies of them myself in large quantities so i feel decent recommending them uh which is uh elsbeth's son's nemesis and uh thassa uh from beyond death i'm trying to remember her formal name god of the sea is no. that what it is that's no. deep dwelling yeah deep dwelling yes that's a deep dwelling um so these are so when you look across uh, theros beyond death uh, the, the mythics within that set have almost all bounced. Um, so the the really the premier ones went first, Kroxa and Uro and um, Heliod, and then kind of some of the second tier ones um, just in the last week have bounced pretty hard. So Clothus uh, went up from two tickets where a number of the pro traders got in. Uh, I made a suggestion, I think a couple days ago, for two ticket Clothus, Clothus and now they're uh, three and a half, I believe. Um, so very decent bounce there. Um, Thassa has and Elsbeth have not seen this, and my theory on on Elsbeth is that it's already being played as a one or two of in a number of kind of uh, controlling shells, um, and that'll probably continue and it'll at least keep the price relatively stable uh, where it is right now, which is about one ticket. Um, so very cheap buying for a, a, a mythic that clearly Wizards thought was good because they made it really a face of the set. Um, and for Thassa, it, she hasn't done a lot yet, but with all the big um, monsters coming in the next set, I imagine there might be some with very good enter the battlefield effects. And if there are, then you pair that with her and you're getting, you know, instant double value right away. And obviously if, if those things stay on the board, it just uh, snow piles. So that's one where I think there's potential, uh, you know, for all we know, nothing uh, interacts like that and it just keeps going down. But even if it does right now, it is about 1.5 ticks as we speak. Um, when I recommended it, to the pro traders uh, a couple days ago, it was 1.3, so it has been going up slightly. Uh, and this one, I mean, if it hits, it, it's going to be a tournament hit, right? It's going to be a, a four-of type of situation, um, and I think the, the the moon is is where you could go with this one. But realistically, just on hype alone, I could see it getting to three ticks, um, just you know, based on perceived interactions, and probably five ticks or more uh, if things really hit. Whereas Elsbeth, I think probably just based on the current play, um, just because slot supply is drying up, I could see it getting up to about three ticks. Um, and lastly, kind of a pet project of mine, which is totally outside of my normal rules of engagement, uh, is Yuriko. Um, that's one that uh, is a pet project of mine. Again, I've, I mentioned it a few times. I mean, right now it's about 27 ticks. Uh, and I think based on what I'm seeing, um, there's been a revitalization of the EDH market on Magic Online. Um, and so you've seen some of the staples um, for the first time, really getting value over the last couple of weeks as people have been working from home and looking for a way to spend their time. And so I think this is one that could get back to its historical um, price spike of, you know, at least 40 ticks, uh, which is where I'd be trying to get out at. Uh, but it is previously hit 60 ticks. So you can see the supply is narrowly shallow um, because we've seen it spike already. Um, and if you look at some of the counterparts, uh, they've already reached 50, 60 ticks. So I think there's opportunity there. Alrighty, so we've got Thassa Deep Dwelling, dollar fifty to three. What what confidence one to ten? What do you put on that one? I'd say that's a six seven. So that's a that's a more speculative one, I think. Elspeth, same thing. Uh, Elspeth, I'd probably put more seven. 
Okay. And Treasure chest I put at a at a nine. I mean, pretty high confidence there. And you're just selling those back to the place you buy them from, right? Correct. Uh, I mean, it, I look at other vendors when I'm selling. Um, the uh, card hoarder, for example, only buys I think 32 at a time. But depending on the situation, I mean, I've arbitraged uh, recently. So meaning one vend for the exact same thing, one vendor was paying more to buy them than I could buy them back for from another vendor. So these prices can be all over the map because um, vendors don't buy from each other, from what I can tell. Um, so yeah, you always want to check prices and compare. But generally speaking, I buy and sell from GoatBots because they can do it in mass, 200 copies at a time. Uh, but you can look at other vendors too if you want to get the best deal and you have more time than uh, you know wanting to get the best returns. Sure. Is it fair to say that the treasure chest play for a player that is looking to build a Magic Online collection or play events on Magic Online carries less risk as well because the downside is you crack your chest and in theory you're up 10%. Sorry, my dogs have been good this whole time and they finally went off. Uh, yes, I think so because <laughs> the expected value again in these chests is actually higher than they're worth. So right now, um, you know, I mean, the calculations, you could probably readjust them for the exact pricing right now, but definitely once the new set comes out and the price of what's in them inevitably goes up. They always do, even if the price doesn't reflect that. Uh, the EV is worth more than the chess. So yeah, if you're looking to play, you want tick, or you want play points to get into drafts and things like that. You can always crack these suckers and get um, usually your your money back and maybe a little bit more, uh, so long as that you're looking to use it to play with. All righty, uh, picks wow. from a non-host. We're going to definitely circle back on these in uh, a month, maybe two months, and see how we did. Um, I think I'm going to at least go in on the treasure chest play. I've got a bunch of ticks sitting around um, from some side action I've had on Magic Online here and there last several months. And uh, it's time to reinvest some of that. So I'll take a stab at some of these and give myself a reason to track our success rate. I'm I'm tempted. I'm going to have to reevaluate these in the light of day. Uh, when I've had a chance to think about this a little bit more, because now it's late and I'm like, I don't really feel like looking all this up at the moment. But I'll I'll probably take a look, try and take a look at these tomorrow if uh, if I'm not too busy at work. All right, with Huge work thanks. I should say. Thank you then to Fred slash Oko Assassin slash <laughs> He Who Shall Not Be Named for Real um, for joining us for our deep dive on getting into Magic Online speculation in the era of the plague. Uh, guess that's a wrap for this yeah. week. Travis, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, just thanks again for joining us. Uh, I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Um, and I would offer this to you to let people know where to find you, but I think that defeats the point, right? You guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com. I'm also constantly haunting our Discord servers, helping our ProTrader members get the most out of their membership. Also, like to remind our listeners, if they haven't before, to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. And to be honest, given the climate, hit me up for a deal. I'm sure we can make something happen. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, strategies for dealing with the plague, and super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, once again... MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. 
Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Which brings us to the end of episode 212 of MTG Fast Finance. Uh, Getting into some uncharted waters here, but it was fun and informative as always. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Oko. We'll see all of you next week in another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm